Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Friday morning, November 3rd, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Um, so let's begin the show with mysterious lyrics. You ready? I mean, it's Friday. You feeling good, Josh? I'm feeling great. Or are you? Uh, did you bring your A game this morning, Josh? I hope so. Okay. Why? Why, why do you hope today you brought your A game, Josh? Uh, yet to be revealed. No, no, no. Let's <laughs> reveal it now. Oh, okay. I mean, let's reveal right. it now. Well, uh, Ken, you are bugging out of the show a little early. Uh, to be nice now. I'm okay. bugging out of the show. <laughs> a dear friend of mine and someone who's worked with me for 20 years, father, passed away. And the funeral is at 11 in Conway. And I need to get out of here about, I asked Rev, I didn't, I didn't take, I didn't take liberties or freedoms without checking with my superior. Okay. So I asked Rev, I said, Rev, would it be okay if I get bug out of here at 9, <laughs> at 9.40 uh, tomorrow because I need to be in Conway by a few minutes before 11 to pay my respects to someone who has worked with me for about 20 years. And, um, and he said, of course you can. What do you want to do? Go to Beck, you know, play a, one of these segments on such and no? I said, what, what if we let Josh? What if we let Josh host his own radio show for about nine minutes? Uh, don't, we're not going to throw him in the deep end because that's only for the you know the brash and bold, right, Josh? <laughs> I guess so. But, we can let him, but but we'll let him dabble in the um in the in the shallow end, not the kiddie pool. I would insult Josh, and he has no business in the kiddie pool. But I'm not sure he's bold and brash enough yet to be in the deep end. Uh, remains to be seen. Well, it does remain to be seen. <laughs> Rez a little nervous. Uh, about what you may make as your topic. <laughs> I'm just interested. So anyway, at curious. About, so we get out of here at 938, 939, uh, We'll come back at about 945-ish. We get out at 954-ish. So Josh has nine minutes of, you know, Jew bashing is what I expect him to do. <laughs> or, 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 you know, whatever it is he chooses to do, uh, the floor will be his. So have you researched a topic that you think would be interesting to our listeners? Because I'm going to tell you, and you know this, nine minutes is longer than you think it is. It certainly is. I mean, nine minutes is the extended edition of Visions of Johanna. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> Quote the line, Rev. Rev, Rev <laughs> walks in the studio. I got my music playing on Friday mornings because I'm trying to get all jacked up about the weekend. <laughs> and I'm trying to get into my Gamecocks are going to play well. You know, I, I'm an Irish and a Gamecock uh, this weekend. And I'm thinking about, <laughs> okay, Notre Dame could beat Clemson in Clemson. South Carolina could. I mean, they had one in six months, but they could win one um, Saturday. Clemson losing, Gamecocks win. That's always a good uh, weekend. Uh, so I'm kind of, you know, getting myself ramped mm -hmm. up and he thinking about has this terrible song playing well, it's just in so here. Terrible oh about my it. gosh. It's horrible. Qu quote the lyric. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a lyric guy, but it was something about lightning bolts in her face. Something about that. Well, lightning bolts in the bones of her face and her, in the bones of her face. I'm like, what in the world <laughs> is that? You didn't drop any acid this morning. See, I exactly. have. Exactly. dropped acid this morning. I know exactly what Dylan's implying yeah. when he says bolts of electricity in the bones of her face. Um, nobody knows what Dylan says. Mm. That's why everybody likes to be a Dylan fan who considers himself somewhat of an intellectual. I don't fall for uh, that. We're, 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 Good thing I'm not an intellectual. Well, I mean, but, but okay, I, I'll, I'll let that be. You are somewhat of an intellectual. Oh, come on. So, so you've got your topic, Josh. I've got a couple things. Okay, good deal. Um, to be honest, though, I haven't researched or planned anything because I thought I thought about it and I and I said to myself, I was like, you know, if I can't do, you know, I want to have my own radio show someday. If I can't do no, nine no, minutes no, no, on no, the no, clock, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to be Wally Pip, <laughs> right? Wait, starting Monday, you know who Wally Pip is? <laughs> I don't. Wally Pip is the guy that took a day off and Lou Gehrig played first base for the Yankees. 
Ooh. And, while, and, and Lou Gehrig played about the next two and a half centuries. First base for the Yankees, and Wally Pipp never got his job back. Yeah, I, I don't want Bruce and Jim calling me Monday saying, hey, we don't need you anymore. We got this young buck that'll work for half the money. He was good. And he's as good as you are. And people up north understand what he's saying. You know, it, it's, it's pretty interesting. The people up north can't get angry with me because they can't understand me. Um, the, there's, there's a lady that goes into my wife's hair salon that says, I listen to Ken every morning, and he has the greatest accent ever. I disagree with nearly everything that comes out of his mouth, and I think he's the biggest moron. She doesn't say that, but she implies that. Um, he's got this right-of-center worldview, and it's it's anti-government, and it's pro-liberty and freedoms, and he professes to be a, a libertarian-leaning Jeffersonian. But I love the way he says it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the southern accent. Um, and I know she deducts 20 or 25 IQ points, um, and she should deduct 12 or 15, but not 20 or 25. Speaking of... Well, I want to ask Josh one thing. Now, this is a decision you have to make uh, before your big debut today, and this is a serious question, how, how you want to handle it. Do you want to stay in your producer position there in the studio and use that microphone and do your segment and have me sitting here in my normal spot in the studio to assist you if needed? Would you like me to leave the studio so you can have it to yourself? I'm happy to do that. No offense whatsoever. Or, and this is an option, I'm happy to do it. If you would like to move to Ken's throne to do your segment, and I will sit in the producer role in the chair and run the board and run the audio and answer the phone calls if there are any, it's up to you. You're not you, going to let him you, wear my purple robe that you, I did you the show in, with. <laughs> no, you see, okay. can sit on the throne if you yeah, like. Yeah, he, he can sit on the throne, but you can't wear the purple robe. <laughs> listen, so, listen, so, I know better than to mess with that microphone and uh, where it sits. So <laughs> right. in terms of where I will sit, I'll have to think about that because okay, I, I honestly hadn't considered that. Yeah, it's, it's totally up, it's to, up you, to you, and I'm fine with whatever this is. This is your time. And we're your two biggest fans. Yeah, I know. mean, we're, we're excited for you. And um, yesterday when we were contemplating on what to do in the last – 10 minutes of the of the broadcast uh when we told josh about it the look in his eyes i mean it was like yes yes i mean i, I want to get on the air and, and, and say and, and i'm telling you you gotta kind of you gotta dabble in it i mean you gotta just kind of toy around with it you know one of the great and i and i believe this um jerry seinfeld had a stand-up routine that he quoted some analytics and data when he said you know, the number one thing people are afraid of is public speaking. The number two thing is dying. <laughs> right. So you'd rather be in the box than given the eulogy mm -hmm. by some of the Pew Research uh, analysis. And, and I just believe this. And I've tried to encourage all three of my kids to be confident in your opinion, to express yourself clearly. Communicating with other people is an invaluable gift. I mean, and, and it's a skill. It's an acquired skill. You can become better and better and better at it. Um, I mean, I was locked in a metal building for the first ah, 40 years of my life. I mean, you know, my, my communication skills were sitting on the tailgate of a pickup, arguing about what brand beer we're buying and how late we're staying at the softball field or who's meeting at the hunt club or whatever, you know, I mean, that, and then all of a sudden I get angry with D heck, uh, I traipse off into politics and I realize, wow, you got to be able to communicate with people. And, um, and I, you know, I don't, I, you, we all understand, I and mean, I think you accept this as non-congratulatory. Um, I realized I had somewhat of a gift. You know, the ability to speak to people with, with, with some degree of believability. Um, I, we did a lot of polling when I was in politics. Why did you vote for him? I thought he meant what he said. 
I mean, don't we don't we say that about Trump? I mean, whether you like what right. he says, you kind of believe he means what he says. Um, now, some of the things he says, we wish he would say, and maybe some of the things he says, he doesn't believe, but he sounds believable. There's a conviction that that what he says, Rocket Man, and then he comes back with, "Yeah, Rocket Man." <laughs> it, it's almost like when he said Rocket Man, it sounded proppy. I don't know that he meant that. Some consultant said, "Hey, try this. Say Rocket Man." But then when he comes back and says, "Yeah, Rocket Man," you know that that's when you're like, "Whoa, this dude means this." You know what I mean? He, he said it again. And, uh, and I just think there's such a, uh, an appetite in, in the public to hear people say things that they genuinely believe to be true. I, I just think the world, politics in particular, and we can go back to uh, the failures of Romney. The biggest failure of Romney was everything that came out of his mouth. And, and plastic doesn't sound. It looks and feels, but it sounded like plastic. I mean, everything that Mitt Romney said to me sounded like plastic what what does this guy believe in i mean is he, what, what is he willing to, what plank is he willing to walk i mean it, forget he looked like every weatherman in america and you know and i mean he's such a decent and moral and ethical man so we were told um i mean folks at staples may feel differently about that and some of the other companies that bain capital got involved in may feel differently about that but romney is still on that rant this, this kind of an anti-Trump, never-Trump rant. And um, when you really try and go back and look, um, Rev, Romney was probably the inflection point. He was the candidate that should have lost, not lost to Barack Obama in a bad economy. I mean, Obama's first term, he didn't know what he was doing, but he was trying to, you know, uh, I don't know, transform the country as best he knew how. And the economy was kind of in the tank. People weren't real happy with the job he was doing. Romney comes along, competent manager, private sector experience, um, somewhat of a moderate Northeast governor, um, looked a little bit presidential, and he loses. And you do some of the um, some of the reevaluations that you do after a campaign. People just didn't like him. He just didn't. He, he looked and sounded plasticky, is my word. And um, and then you had McCain come after that, and McCain would have been. I guess a better candidate because he he had the advantage of being a war hero, and people tend to give war heroes the benefit of the doubt. And then we kind of move on to to Trump, and th- this kind of leads me into this next bit. We'll take a break in in a few moments here. Um, there's a there, there's a narrative out there being pushed amongst most American uh, media members that Nikki Haley is on the move. She's on the rise. Uh, you know, she's the um, She's kind of separated herself from everybody else as it relates to the kind of the consolidation of the never Trumpers, the establishment Republicans. Uh, I found something in the Federalist, and I couldn't have written it any better. Uh, and I want to read it verbatim, and I'll give Kurt Schlister um, the credit. You ready? Nikki was always the candidate for the establishment curious folks who thought Mike Pence was just too Jesusy, <laughs> not girl powery enough. With Pence departing, Tim Scott sinking. Chris Christie deflating. I didn't notice that. And the novelty value of Vivek Ramaswamy fading as crunch time approaches, she's really the only alternative left to Trump or DeSantis. The problem is she rejects the modern populist conservative GOP model. She's Jeb in a skirt. And the voters were done with Jebs and Mitts and McCain's and the rest of Team Fail. Her recent Michael Steele endorsement tells you just about everything you need to know. She's dominating a lane that no one wants to drive in anymore. Isn't that kind of what we've preached 
since 2016. I mean, there's a lane. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And it's bountiful and it's fruitful. And there are contributions galore. And there are fundraisers to be had. And there are trips to Washington. And there are meetings with consultants. But there are not any voters in that lane. That's the asymmetrical relationship. I talk about the lane that Nikki Haley is occupying is going to be very, very fruitful. It's going to be very advantageous to fundraising and conservative ink. Bill Crystal's waiting at the next exit for Nikki Haley. George Will is waiting after Bill Crystal gets through with her. The military industrial complex is an exit down. Corporate America, Wall Street, all these, these forces that have had so much influence on Washington are waiting for somebody. And Nikki Haley does appear to be that somebody, so she'll have enormous fundraising numbers. She'll be on all the networks. She'll say things that are so inside the beltway sounding, but there ain't any voters in that lane. And that's the that, that's the asymmetry of the relay. It's not a misalignment. I'm sorry, Drew. You've got a larger responsibility than I do, but I wish you'd listen to me. It's not it's not a misalignment. It's an asymmetrical relationship. The donor class are at odds, complete and total odds with this party's base, this party being the GOP. And I'll look this morning to make sure I didn't miss anything. Because when I hear all these things about Nikki, 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 you know what her numbers are, RCP average? 8.3%. She's 51 points behind Trump. Mm. Trump's at 59.3. This is nationally. I mean, in, I agree in Iowa, it's a little tighter. Trump's at 49. DeSantis at 17. Nikki's at 11. That's the average. There's a recent um, Quinnipiac poll that has Nikki and DeSantis tied at about 17 or 18%. So let's argue that Nikki is taking votes away from DeSantis. Nobody's taking them away from Trump. Nobody. He's at 50 in Iowa. He's at 48 in New Hampshire. He's at 59.3 nationally. He's probably at 60% in South Carolina. I mean, I'll bet he's at, if he's 59 in Iowa, there's no way he's less than that in South Carolina. Her home state. I mean, maybe maybe Mike Pence is too Jesus-y. Maybe she is girl power, girl power, go, girl, go. But there, there's nothing on the horizon that suggests to me that this is nothing but Donald Trump's GOP. And America first is solidly, solidly the ideology or philosophy that dominates where this party wants to go. According to the voters. Well, I mean, and that's what does a political party exist for? Well, exactly. To carry the need, carry the priorities of the voter to Washington and act upon those impulses. Take a break. Back in a few. Our listeners don't play. Our listeners do <laughs> not play. Okay. <laughs> I said Romney and then McCain. McCain was 08, Romney was 12. Oh. Um, I love our listeners because they know what they're talking about, and they've proven that for the last two weeks in, um, in, in participating as much as they have uh, in, this, uh, in this show. Uh, I get that mixed up. Uh, it was, okay, who was in 04? That would have been, that would have been George, Bush. George, George W. Bush, re-election. Yeah, let's take 2000, George W., 2004, George W., 08 was McCain, mm -hmm. 12 was Romney, mm -hmm. 16 Trump. There you go. Got it. Now, uh, for some reason, I do get McCain and Romney uh, inverted. I think one became or one came before uh, before the other. Uh, 843-661-0937. I want to save this for a few moments, but but I want you to stew on something, if you will. Um, we had a realtor call in yesterday, a friend of mine, 
Uh, we talked to two realtors yesterday, Rev and I did, um, in a podcast about real estate and investing and financing and whatnot. And when you say to a realtor or a home builder or somebody in that in that business, the Fed owns two and a half trillion dollars, actually two point six trillion dollars in mortgage backed securities, they look at you like so, I don't know. Well, that's your world. I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, you know, I build houses, I sell houses, and people buy houses. You know, um, I get blueprints, I get specs. Somebody makes a down payment, the banker, uh, the closing, you know, all this commission, all these things. But when you say, well, the Fed has $2.6 trillion of mortgage backed securities on their balance sheet, it's always that glazed look. <laughs> it's all of a sudden like, I, I don't know. I mean, I have no, no, no idea what you're talking about. Here's my question. We've been told that, you know, as conservative Republicans, there are times we got to get off our high horse and accept government intervention. GM was too big to fail, right? I mean, there was a day Chrysler was too big to fail. Goldman was too big to fail. Bank of America, too big to fail. Citibank was too big to fail. Let me ask you this, and I'm, I'm being serious here, and this is, this is very, this is an academic exercise. I, I will readily admit but, but I'm thinking about some callers out there that kind of dabble in this, the science of the economy. And is housing too big to fail? I mean, the industry of housing. Because I, you know, I'm, I'm telling you guys that there, there is a problem out there that, that I think, I mean, it's not insurmountable. I mean, we can overcome whatever we choose to put our minds to. But, but a $400,000 mortgage today, cost about $1,060 more than it did a year ago. I mean, it's housing. I mean, we're not comparing this to the housing crisis of 08, right? Now, it's could, it, couldn't it's this different, problem, but it could be bigger. But, but couldn't this problem be fixed by lower interest rates? I mean, that's the first step. I mean, if interest rates, which is a controllable fact, but, but, right? Okay, but then you've got inflation. I know. I mean, I, mean, you, you I understand can't. there's that dynamic, but I mean, if the if the Fed cut, and I've I've talked and heard from a lot of real estate agents that thinks that next year the rates will go down, um, they hope that rates will go down, but they shouldn't. Why? But because it, it's going to. I mean, it leads to inflation. Money can't be that cheap. I mean, you, I, I'm sorry, money can't be that cheap. Cheap money leads to irrational decisions a level of confidence in business and, and, and purchasing that is un, unsustainable. There, there are going to be so many companies in the next 12 months go out of business and so many people lose their jobs because the company couldn't survive unless interest rates were 3 4 5%. I mean, is a business really that, if a business is that dependent upon the cost of finance, it's not a sustainable business. And, and I, I just, when I look, and I went red last night. I mean, guys, I spent about an hour of your time um, trying to get to the bottom of this. I want to read a paragraph uh, and stick with me for a second. Because, I mean, I actually went to the Federal Bank, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York's website. And I started Googling and playing around with the, 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 the mortgage-backed security purchase program. It originated and when? 2008, believe that or not. You know, but the world blew up. Had to get real drastic in what they, in what they did. You ready? I want to read it verbatim. I mean, this is from the um, MBS Purchase Program, Federal Reserve Bank of New York, serving the second district and the nation. I'll read it verbatim. The operational and financial characteristics of MBS purchases are complex and require specialized technology and expertise to transact. The Federal Reserve 
chose external investment managers as a means of implementing the MBS program quickly and efficiently while at the same time minimizing operational and financial risk. Because of the size and complexity of the agency's MBS program, a competitive, here we go, you ready? We're about to find out something. A competitive request for proposal process was employed to select four investment managers and a custodian. The selection criteria was based on the institution's operational capacity, size, overall experience in the MBS market, and a competitive fee structure. The program custodian is J.P. Morgan. Mm, okay, let's continue. Same paragraph. As of August 2009, I mean, the world's blowing up. The Federal Reserve streamlined the rest of external investment managers, reducing the number of investment managers from four to two. The New York Fed retained Wellington Management Company, LLP, for trading settlement and a secondary provider of risk and analytics, and BlackRock, Inc., as the primary provider of risk and analytics support. So here's my theory. You ready? I mean, I don't know what BlackRock does. I don't know what J.P. Morgan and Wellington do. I mean, that's so far above my pay grade, but they're damn getting rich. There is no telling how much profit Wellington, BlackRock, and J.P. Morgan made on being the risk assessor and the custodian of $2.5 trillion in mortgage-backed securities. And, and, and all of a sudden, the rates go from 4 to 8%. You're at the mercy of the Fed. I mean, the Fed has decided now that rates need to be increased. Well, I mean, the rates do need to be increased. They probably need to be. I mean, Teal thinks they need to be at 13 or 14%. And that leads to 25% unemployment. But he believes to get the financial house back in order, that's the dramatic measures we need to take. But, but the point I'm trying to make is, what did we gain? I mean, obviously, realtors did well, builders did well, but the consumer, what did the consumer gain by inter- in the long run by interest rates being 4 4.5%? I mean, you got a cheap mortgage, but look at the price of housing. I mean, look, look, look at the increase in the price of housing. So here's my proposal, and, and call me crazy. Somebody, I mean, yesterday I talked about assumable mortgages, and could the Fed do something? Could the government? I mean, I'm, I'm a limited government guy, but let's go back to J.D. Vance. Are we going to enact policies that advantage the American worker, the American family, and the American way of life? Are we going to, this is a weird word, but I'll say it, are we going to weaponize government in the way we want government to be weaponized? I mean, there's no doubt about it, guys. The MBS purchase program made Goldman more profitable, excuse me, made J.P. Morgan more profitable, Wellman or Wellington and, and BlackRock more profitable. I mean, there's no way around that. To manage and analyze $2.5 trillion. I mean, what is the fee on that? I mean, there's no mention of the fee. Is it 2%? Is it 1.5%? Is it 3%? No idea. What, are they, what service do they provide? But there's huge amounts of money being transacted in the dark of night. Huge, unfathomable amounts of money are being transacted in this weird arrangement the government has with the Fed. So here's my America First proposal. Banks aren't going to like this. I'm damn sure Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and BlackRock and Vanguard won't like it. But what if every home buyer had access to a line of credit at the Fed? What if there was a standard mortgage rate in America? I mean, you don't okay. go you don't go to the Fed to buy money to go on vacation. I mean, 
the, the Fed is allowing these companies to make lucrative profits on on managing and assessing the risk on their on their balance sheet. And I could I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. I mean, who could provide that analytic? Only those kind of companies. But but the Fed has become a cash cow. It's become a profit center. There's about eight trillion dollars on its balance sheet. Two and a half for MBS, mortgage-backed securities. I mean, they're, they're telling you they awarded the contracts to Wellington and BlackRock and J.P. Morgan. How much money are those three entities making off government debt guaranteed by the full faith and credit of you, I, and every other U.S. taxpayer? Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. And so you say uh, you don't really know what J.P. Morgan and BlackRock and those guys do or are doing. But the fact is, they're making a lot of money, whatever it is they're doing. Well, I mean, you know right? they are. Right? I mean, they're, no, they're patriotic. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not for profits. Oh, J.P. Morgan is not in this for the money. BlackRock is not in this for the money. And I have no idea. I mean, I, that, that is so sophisticated, I would imagine, but, but I knew when I started reading, and this is where I kind of am a journalist to some degree. I mean, I don't have a degree, obviously, anywhere, but, I mean, I, I, I started going down. I mean, I Googled Federal Reserve Bank of New York because I got to believe if anybody's involved in that, where is Wall Street? I mean, it's in New York. So the Fed Bank in New York is more likely to be closer aligned with the uh, mortgage-backed securities on the Fed's balance sheet and it's about $2.6 trillion. I mean, I can confirm that. I've said $2.5 trillion. It's actually $2.6 trillion. Well, I mean, the money sits there. Uh, you know, the, the debt sits there. The bonds sit there. Um, and they're managed. And I don't, once again, I don't have any idea what sort of um, risk advice they give, what sort of analytic information they provide. But uh, the custodian or the program custodian is J.P. Morgan. And then the other is BlackRock and, and, uh, and Wellington Management Company. And they provide the risk and analytic support. And, and you know they're getting paid gobs of money. Well, and, and here's kind of where I'm, where I'm headed. If we're not going to abolish the Fed, and we're not. I mean, we're, you know, I, Rand Paul, Ron Paul, his father ran for president. Abolish the Fed, abolish the Fed. And, and he's probably right. I mean, the Fed's probably done more damage to the economy than it has uh, been helpful. Um the Fed would be okay if it were a lender of last resort, but it's become, you know, the um, kind of the cosigner to debt, and it's just it's it's an amoeba. It's it's something you really can't hardly understand. And here's my point: I think the majority of Republicans and conservatives would rather there not be a Fed and let the market work as the market works. Uh, if you give the Republicans a chance to say to a Republican president Richard Nixon, you blew it in '73. When you, I mean, the, the, the disconnect from gold as a tangible asset allowed fiat currency to be normalized. So you just got paper money. What's it worth? I, it depends. You know, it depends on today or tomorrow or the next day and how much we printed, what state of economy, what the interest rates are. I mean, all these go into the mixing uh, pot that is our economy. But, but quantitative easing is when the world changed. I mean, that really and truly, uh, I mean, I, I spoke to the latter Rotarians uh, a couple of weeks back. Might have been last week. And one of the guys said he studied economics at South Carolina back in the 80s. And they were toying around with the idea of quantitative easing. You know, the government injects liquidity into an economy to create a little more energy. Uh, the, the economy's sluggish. You can't get going. So you kind of, um, 
you, you, you ease monetary policy and you allow the injection of liquidity into an economy and it kind of increases activity and pro, uh, productivity and whatnot, and then you restrict. So he said he read about some of these theories, um, but it really goes back to, remember the, the, the bit we did, and don't hold me to these numbers, but the Fed has about 1,300 economists working directly or as contractors. There are 1,300 economists that are paid by the Fed. Some work directly for the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Some are contractors. But remember the guy that did kind of a deep dive on their voting proclivities, Mm -hmm. and about 1,100 of the 1,300 were Democrats. I mean, to me, if you're a Democrat economist, more likely than not, you're a Keynesian economist, or you are a modern monetary theorist. So they, they have a certain and a very different worldview than what we have. But if we're not going to abolish the Fed, if the Fed is going to continue to be as important to the economy as it is, why let J.P. Morgan, Wellington, and BlackRock have all the advantages? Why not open some sort of window, a discount window, that allows a home buyer to have a line of credit at the Fed? I mean, you're paying them back. You're just taking the bank out of the equation. You're taking the ups and downs of our, and it would only apply to the mortgage industry. Well, I mean, that's not fair to all the other industries. That gives the housing sector a big advantage. I mean, realtors don't have to worry about the uh, the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, uh, home builders and whatnot. And that's why I prefaced all of this with, is housing too big to fail? I mean, we, we, we made a decision. You and I didn't, Rev. Josh didn't. But we made a decision in 2008 that the auto industries were too big to fail, right? The banks, certain banks were too big to fail. Are those banks and auto industry bigger than the housing economy? Because I'm telling you, when the housing economy gets uh, gets pneumonia, everybody else gets cold. I mean, it's just the nature of the business. It's very important. Um, if I called my brother today on my way to the beach and I said, how's business? He said, you know how housing is, don't you? I mean, we've seen a slowdown in housing. He's going to see a dramatic slowdown in his business. I'm not, I'm not trying to make it up to realtors. I'm not trying to look after my buddies who build houses. I, I've never done that behind this microphone. Um, but but there, there's we find we've got a conundrum. Seventy-seven percent of mortgages in America today are financed at south of five percent. I mean that's a big problem. H- how do we expect people to sell a home with a four and a half percent note and buy a home with a you know eight percent note? I mean financially, it's just not it doesn't make any sense. I'll wait until the rates go down. But wouldn't it create less ebbs and flows, less swings, less wild gyro? We're never going to stop completely the animal spirits of capitalism, nor should we. But but if we've agreed that, that we're not going to abolish the Fed and the Fed's going to be here until the cows come home, then why not utilize the Fed to help someone other than J.P. Morgan, Wellington, and BlackRock? Because they're getting filthy rich. <laughs> you don't know how they're doing it, and I don't know how they're doing it, but you can bet your sweet ass at 649 Friday morning <laughs> the Fed is writing big checks to those companies making or giving that advice and making those decisions to help the Fed manage $2.6 trillion in mortgage-backed um, securities. And once again, I don't. I, if I got behind that curtain, if they let me in the room today when they meet with the Fed, I'd be as lost as anybody. I mean, I wouldn't have a clue what they're talking about, and I think they do that intentionally. I say, well, I don't have a clue. I'd have a little bit of an understanding, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as complex as it, as it needs to be. But if the Fed's going to be there, it's going to be so important to the economy, and they set interest rates, 
and, and measure and adjust inflation. What if they had a window? What if the Fed had a separate division? They're about $13 trillion in mortgage debt in America today. And instead of you going to the bank, well, let's say you go to the bank. The bank goes to the Fed. I mean, that's kind of the way it works now. I mean, the bank parks money in the Fed. The Fed loans money to banks. <laughs> it's, it's like the Seinfeld episode and the write-off. It's almost like the write-off of the reservation all in one episode. <laughs> and you know the episodes I'm talking about. They, they write it off. You don't know what a write-off is. You don't either, but they do it. They do it all the time. They always do it. I know what a reservation is. I, I don't think you do. I think you know how to take a reservation. I don't think you know how to hold a reservation. So we've got both Seinfeld episodes. I mean, we're trying to figure out what a reservation is, and we think we know what a write-off is, and we're, and we're you know, so, some college dropout from a town with no stoplight is trying to suggest that he has some complex understanding of what the Fed does. No, I'll admit I don't have a complex understanding of what the Fed does. That's what freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> that that's what alarms me and cons- I don't have any idea what they do in that room guys but there are enormous amounts of money transacted and you know we the taxpayer to some degree are on the hook now these mortgage backed securities you know I mean that's mortgage backed I mean that's backed by mortgages I mean it's security backed by the value of a home you know what is that mortgage worth and I'm not saying the Fed should never have a mortgage backed security on their balance sheet I don't know if they should or not I don't know what percentage they should have of 10-year treasuries or 30-year T-bills or, or USI. I don't have any idea. But, but I, I do believe that the Fed has become a profit center for Wall Street. And if it's become a profit center for Wall Street, and one of the issues in our economy is the wild swings in the housing market, wouldn't it alleviate some of the wild swings if when you went to buy a house today, there was a standard interest rate? You've got an account. I mean, we all have a Social Security account. You'd have a Fed account. You can borrow up to X for a home mortgage and a home mortgage alone. I mean, it's transacted at the bank. I don't, I, I'm just thinking about this. I mean, it, once again, this is very think tankish and, and hypothetical. I don't have any idea how to work through that. But is that something we should consider as we seem to be headed for a huge housing slowdown and correction that we'll have? Trust me a big impact on the 2024 economic cycle. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Making his daily appearance on Wake Up Carolina is our good friend from Fox News Radio, Ryan Schmelz in our nation's capital. Ryan, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, sir? Happy Friday. Uh, same to you. So the House did what we expected the House to do. They voted on a Israeli-only bill offset by cuts to the IRS. Where do we go from here, Ryan? Well, I think we first need to get the reaction and find out why 12 Democrats voted for this bill. You had a lot of Jewish Democrats who decided to go and break from the party and vote for it, despite the fact that it had the IRS funding attached to it. So uh, I think seeing what the fallout is from that, and Speaker Jeffrey or Leader Jeffries is supposed to speak later today, seeing what the fallout is from that is going to be very fascinating. But, yes, I think where we go from here, you know, the reality is this is this doesn't really seem like it has the legs to pass in the Senate. Uh, a lot of senators have said this is dead on arrival, and the president has already said he's going to veto it. So it looks like it's kind of not really going to go anywhere. But, but Ryan, if, if, if Johnson and the Republicans dig in, 
where do we go? I mean, does Israeli funding get held up, or do they? Is there another deal to be made? I mean, you're on Capitol Hill. I'm not. I mean, is there scuttlebutt of a of a of a another compromising deal? Yeah, we haven't heard too much extensively on a backup plan. We did hear one Republican say yesterday that there could be the possibility that they try an Israel aid only bill, you know, later, but just don't involve the IRS slashing of funds with it. So that surely is a possibility. Could there be a compromise that is made with Democrats on this? Or could the, the House, you know, suck it up and just try to vote on the $106 billion supplemental? I don't think the House has the appetite for that, but it, you surely can't rule it out. But in terms of a firm, concrete backup plan, we have not seen one at least released yet from the Speaker of the House. But it's fair to say Ukrainian aid is at risk. Uh, it is. Now, now what's, been, what's been flirted with with Ukrainian aid, and Speaker Johnson talked about this yesterday, is the possibility of bringing a, a Ukrainian bill at some point and attaching border security policy with it. Because Republicans have made the argument that the issue at the southern border is not a money issue, it's a uh, policy issue. So could they get some conservative policies through and get the Biden administration to bite on that if they can attach it to Ukrainian aid? That's something they're flirting with right now. So well explained. Ron, thank you for your time, my man. Have a good weekend. Hey, you too. Thank you so much, as always. Thank you. I'll tell you, man, that guy was um, a bit green when he started joining us periodically. He ain't green anymore. I mean, he really and truly Mm -hmm. does a great job of concisely explaining the situation at hand got a couple of questions about what he said to our to our listeners we'll get there but we've got a call let's go to the phone breeze good morning hey kid does any does anybody i gotta say this i don't know anybody in my world that gets angrier than breeze does when i say the name jp morgan of black rock is that fair breeze well i was getting ready to say i'm leading up to that but uh kid that, that's got to be hell i i would even you and i could probably write a two-sentence paragraph old Republicans dig it in. If that's not the Friday joke of the damn week, Republicans dig it in. Damn it, that ain't a short story, is it? <laughs> can you give me can you give me can you give me one occasion? Maybe they dug in maybe they dug in over there in Congress because they didn't have tofu on the damn salad bar. And they said, Well I'll be damned if I go eat this salad unless I got my estrogen surgeon tofu. God, I hate this Republicans. They need to be this lined up in a big line, and every one of them needs to get the, the dang old Matt Dillon backhand. They may be sick to my stomach. I mean, it's all I can leave out to throw up my eight eggs and a half pound of bacon I had just now for breakfast. But anyway, Kenny, are you going to the football game? This is a trick question. I'm just, are you going to watch Carolina? I am, I am not. I'm, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to the well, coast. I don't, I don't blame you. But, you know, you and I both, I went to the Citadel. And I was just thinking, you know, us, we humans are odd. And then it kind of falls back on the Black Rock Bay, too. But I've been going to Central football games literally since I was five. I'm going to the occasional Carolina game. And I would say over 50% of the time, and that applies for you, too, in Carolina, over 50% of the time, I knew we were going we were going to lose. Or have, I mean, you know, very rarely have I gone to a Citadel. Now, we've had our good t- seasons, very few, but we've had our good seasons. But most of the time, a Citadel fan went to a game knowing there's a pretty damn good chance we're going to lose. And I believe you can say that as a Carolina fan, can't you? 
There's a pretty, yeah, I've had many, many Saturdays riding to Columbia expecting the worst. Yeah, yeah, but we still showed up. And, and you know, and maybe we're all idiots. And just the same thing, now here we are, and you were talking about Black Rock, you know, and, 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 and J.P. and those guys, and, and man, they're evil. There's no doubt about it. But here we are. It seems like to me, well, you know, I know we get ready to get, her, get screwed over, but let's show up anyway for the screwing. I mean, I mean, you know, it's almost like that sense of helplessness. What can we do to make our team better? And there ain't nothing we can do. What can we do to fight BlackRock? We still show up at the bank. We still do this. We still do that. But BlackRock and the banks, it just shows the total corruption between our government. Now, what made the government pick BlackRock or these other places? Why did they pick those guys? Why, why are they in bed together? Why are people that are supposed to be working for us working against us? I mean, you know, and, and I've been thinking this whole week, you know, and I, and I think about some of our callers. I think that we really are, we can't call a Democrat a liberal because liberals, if you're divided, liberals are not like, like Jeff tries to get, you know, he's, he's such an intellectual. Let me see if I can't trick kid into saying that, uh, you can lie on your on your loan application to the bank and say, "Hey, I I got twenty million dollars worth of property outside of Ader. and the bank says, "Oh, good, I'll loan you twenty million dollars for that." You know, and he wanted you to fall for that on the Donald Trump thing. But you know, Donald Trump he probably ain't a good guy either. But then they, they, let's switch it around. Well, you got the radio station, so you got more influence than a college professor, but you can't give nobody an F. You can't ruin their lives. So those kids are sitting in that college professor's class, for, you know, and that guy gets people that. I'm sorry. No. We lost Just Breeze. Lost yep. Yeah. I think when Josh picked the phone up to answer the other line, uh, that <laughs> the other line went dark. Uh, sorry oh, about weird. that, Breeze. Uh, anyway, 843-661-0937 is our number. Apologize to Breeze for that mishap. But yeah, when Josh picked away. the phone up, the other the other line went on, went dark. 843-661-0937 is our number. I will say this to Breeze's point, and he could have gone on and on and on, and you not, you guys know he could have gone on and on and on. But but I think we're, we've realized now we're getting screwed. I mean, it's almost like that there's a there, there's a process of which we have to we have to go through. Um, we realize now we're getting screwed. We don't know what to do about it. I mean, I, I'm not speaking for everybody, but the majority of America firsters, if you really, I mean, if you sat down with 20 America firsters and asked them to explain America first, they'd have 20 different definitions or, or, or opinions about what America first is. But, but one of the central themes would be, I, I just don't think my government has me at heart. I don't think they have my interests, my concern. Um, you know, I don't think they treat me as a, as a priority. And it really goes back to this asymmetrical uh, relationship that I've been talking about a lot. You've got the donor class that have basically bought one of our political, well, I really bought both of our political parties, but you've got kind of an uprising within one of our parties that says, and, and I think Breeze is onto something here. What do we do? I mean, what do you do when you know you're getting screwed, but it's so far above your pay grade? I mean, if the bully it's in the schoolyard, you know, pushes you down every day, one of these days, you got to make a decide. You got to decide whether you're going to get pushed down the rest of your life. Or you're going to take a swing at him. That's a pretty simple proposition. 
I mean, there's scenario A and scenario B. This is so complicated, so consuming, so and and I think the majority of Republicans today believe with every fiber of their body that they're getting screwed. They just don't know what to do about it. And I think the first initial reaction they had was to vote for this political blunt instrument. Let's go back to the phone. And Breeze is back on the line, I think, here. I don't know what happened, Breeze, but are you there? I, I know what the hell happened. It was daggone NASA, daggone satellite, Saturn. <laughs> I felt like that because I was, I was raised too much game. But, you know, I'm, I'm just getting ready to say, I mean, I'm not saying you got to beat these people up, but I think sometimes you just got to stop their nonsense. If you think, uh, even by the liberals that I have, if I ask them four or five questions and I try to play really dumb about it, they can't answer them. They can't answer them. But the bottom line is everything that is, is the Democrat Party stands for right now is evil. And I'm not very, very, very excited about the Republican Party either. But I mean, but another thing is, and I'm just sitting there waiting, trying to figure out, because you know we got this election going. And there is no way in hell, in a, unless our country is so far gone, there's no way in hell that anybody or the Democrats, I don't see who the Democrats can bring in. It sure can't be Biden. They can win a fair election, so they're going to have to do something. They're going to have to do something. They, I, and I wonder what it's going to be. Is it going to be some kind of a war? I don't think people are going to fall for the virus thing again, but they may. I mean, it's amazing how stupid people are. I got my liberals they're still lining up. I should call them liberals. They're leftists because a liberal wouldn't be stupid enough to get a shot at this point. A liberal wouldn't be stupid enough to fall for all this stuff. The real liberals never believed that government was their friend. So anyway, I just wanted to rant a little bit today, but I'm you trying did. to figure out how to be Yeah. Thank, all right, buddy. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, and, and, I, and I want to say this. Um, when, when Jeff and I debated yesterday the situation with Tommy Turbyville, um, I mean, I, I know I'm right about that. Turbyville is not, excuse me, Turbyville is not trying to stop a woman from having a pregnant, I mean, a, an abortion, travel expenses, and, and paid leave. So, so if the Democrats want all these military employ or, or military personnel to be uh, promoted, just drop that. I mean, it's it's not about abortion. It's about paid leave and travel expense. That's how committed Democrats are to abortion. There is no exception. It's not just that the government, and in essence, when a, when, a, when a person who works for the government has health care that allows them to have an abortion, to some degree, the government's paying for the health care. I mean, they're paying for the abortion. I mean, I understand, you know, you, you may work at a government agency where you pay for your health care, and, excuse me, the government pays for your, and you got to pay for your spouse and kids and whatnot. I mean, there's some complicated and varying formulas within that reality. But, I mean, to some degree, Government workers who have insurance and, and someone in that family has an abortion and the insurance pays for it, that is, in essence, a government-funded abortion. That's not what we're debating. I mean, the, media, the, 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 the mainstream media narrative has convinced a lot of Americans that Tommy Turbyville is trying to stop a woman who works in the armed services from having an abortion. Tommy Turbyville is trying to stop the American taxpayer from paying for that woman to travel to another state and have an abortion, travel expense, and paid leave. And the Democrats could stop that today if they took that off the table. If the Biden administration said, okay, we're going to leave everything as is, the woman can have her abortion, 
but the taxpayers aren't paying for her to not be at work and her travel expense. And we get to promoting military officers. But the Democrats are that committed to killing babies. No exceptions. Name the last time you heard a Democrat say, yeah, I think that should be an exception. Yeah, I think this could be an exception. But the media narrative has been Turbyville stubborn, and he won't budge, and he's putting Americans at risk, and he's harming the American military. Well, tell the taxpayer you don't have to pay for paid leave and travel expense, and we'll get to promoting military officers, as we always have. Take a break. Back in a few. E six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers. Let's go there. Mike in Darlington. Good morning. You're on. Good morning. I tell you, uh, Breeze gets my blood pressure up when I hear him. He gets on one of those rants, but I, I think he touched on the absolute uh, truth of it. Is that there's a, a kind of culture of corruption that's in the banking industry and in the government and everywhere people are, instead of the work ethic, we have the corruption ethic going on. And uh, the work ethic is a good thing. The corruption ethic is a very, very bad thing. And people are getting stabbed in the back. And I'm glad to see those Jewish legislators uh, realize that the Democrat Party was not looking out for their interest and their constituencies' interest at all, and that's uh, I, that that gives me some hope that uh, perhaps the uh, black legislators legislators will uh, see that uh, the Democratic Party does not have their interest at heart. That they've never had their interest at heart. And they never will. But does the Republican Party have your interest at heart? Well, that's a big iffy thing. <laughs> See, I'm I arguing neither Republican... party has the other. I mean, their constituency at heart. It's kind of the uniparty. I think uh, I think you got a very valid point there. And uh, you see through it. It's a culture of corruption that cuts through both parties, and um, the, that's why I think Trump was willing to call these people out and call a, a, a spade a spade, a heart a heart, a diamond a diamond. And that's and no no one else wanted to do that. But uh they wanted to leave the uh Americans the Americans and all the people that make up America, we all get the deuce of clubs. But I I don't see how Every every time we call for a card, they, we, we've got unlimited deuce of clubs coming to us, and uh, they've got nothing but aces and jacks. So that that's just really it's really hard. I I probably played too much blackjack in my life, but uh, it's just uh, it's just not a good thing to allow these people to be. Um, so autonomous, so powerful that they could, they feel like they can just run anything down anyone's throat. And I don't know how you're going to stop it, except people have got to wake up and get out and vote. I, I don't know if Williams can break the chains of uh, the Democrat Party. I, I doubt if he's ever voted for a Republican. But and uh, But I must compliment you. Ken, on the adroit way, you and very skillful way, you handled uh, 
Jeff the other day. He was trying to do his little talking points thing, and you kept parrying, parrying his uh, comments on every level. And that I I was really proud of you, Ken. You're the best talk show host I think there is out there. And uh, send, send that man, send that man a voucher, <laughs> send that man a gift card or something. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Um, yeah, we'll end with that. Uh, yeah, yeah, just right there. Uh, no, no. I mean, uh, period. Right. There. I, I'm okay at this when you guys start inspiring me. I mean, it, it's a grind. I mean, I'm leveling with it. We talk about it internally. I mean, callers spur your curiosity. I mean, I, I know the way I see the world. I know what I think about these things. And, and when you guys call in with your perspectives, your opinions, you know, your views, then it kind of generates itself. It becomes kind of the snowball theory. Next thing you know, what we got Larry's opinion, got Charles's, got Joe's, got Mike's, got, you know, Jeff's, got Williams, got all these people who offer up these opinions publicly, and it becomes a, a, a conversation about this issue or that issue or another issue, and you're talking about the advantage the Democrats have today in America, I think that at one point in time in my life, and I don't know what the number is, um, 70% of the media was Democrat, 70% of academia were Democrats, and now it's monolithic. you got 95% of the media Democrats, 95% of academia Democrats, and I've decided in the last six months that there's a distinguishment between higher ed. I mean, you got these elite universities, these very prestigious universities that give you a distinct advantage in the media. And I'm talking about if you if you if you make a if you apply for a job at the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or or Washington Post, and you graduated from the University of South Carolina, that's one thing. I mean, you'll probably get an interview. But if you graduated from Princeton or Yale or Harvard or Cornell or Columbia, guess what? I mean, there's a special stack over here that your resumes and applications go in same thing in government. I mean, the same thing in these government agencies. So, so my, my, my concern is that these people are not being exposed. I mean, there, there's almost a, a weird innocence about their worldview. I mean, they, 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 they go to a boarding school, a prep school. They go to an Ivy League school. They get a job as, you know, in, in the Department of Homeland Security. Well, everybody in there confirms everything they've ever been taught at the boarding school and the Ivy League school. The next thing you know, you know, Trump shows up and they're like, how disgusting is he? I mean, he, you know, n- n- nothing I was taught confirms anything he says or believes. And that's what I'm saying about these people who have enormous impact over the conversation or not conversationalist. I mean, they're living in bubbles. They're living in these isolated silos. And we all live in silos to some degree. But, but the silos that choose what information gets to be made public or not did you hear what Elon Musk said about Twitter? I mean, he, he said it was a, it was an extension to the government. It was a propaganda arm of the government. It was state-run media. I mean, the Republicans were being censored at about ten times the rate the Democrats were. And now, now Twitter has a right to do that. I mean, it's a privately held company. Well, that's publicly held, but I don't know if it's privately owned. I think it is now. But I mean, it, it's it's shareholder driven. And if the shareholder don't like the you know the president and CEO, they fire him and hire somebody else. But, um, but I just think that, you know, and, and once again, innocence is a weird word because there's nothing innocent about what they're doing, but they're, they're just not, they don't have any interest. They don't have any curiosity about the world that disagrees with them. And, and at 70%, you've still got 30% dissenting voices. At 95%, the other 5% are probably afraid to speak their minds and say their piece. 
I mean, if you're a conservative kid on an Ivy League campus, you got to be careful. I mean, you got to be real careful. I've told my daughter, don't you tell anybody about my political past. <laughs> and that's the University of South Carolina. <laughs> don't you tell anybody. She's in a class one day, and one of her friends says almost to the professor, well, Libby's dad was in politics. No, my dad wasn't. <laughs> my dad told me, no, my dad, no, 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 my, 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 no, no, my, my dad develops property. And he used to build truck beds. <laughs> Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The biggest problem is these guys, they, they listen to what they want to listen to. I, I, I still think, and I've always thought, the biggest mistake we made back in the I think 1918, when they put the senators up for a vote instead of being appointed by the the representatives of the state and could be recalled at any time, they weren't doing the state's bidding. That's changed the whole dynamic. But talking about the the Senate on the confirmation of military, see, they don't want their names on some of these confirmations, so they just put a whole group up, and they without reservation or with you know, it's, you're approved. But it's a voice so vote. It's, There's no recording. Yeah, it's a voice it's, vote. There's no recorded vote. What Tommy Turberville is doing is making them have a recorded vote, and each one of those have to go up. But instead of staying there and doing their work. They go take a month off here, going to junk it there. What the hell? They were in Taiwan and Israel and all these other places in the last three months when they could have been approving all these military people. In fact, I believe they just replaced Millie, who retired, but they had to sit down and do uh, an actual recorded vote on it. So they can promote military. So this is a red herring, and Jeff knows that. You know, you hear him laugh when he said, but there's no, in the military, they have something called emergency leave. You know, you don't have to plan it. Okay, the the woman gets in trouble with a pregnancy, that's automatic. She doesn't even have to leave the state. I don't care where she's at. So this is all just something they tacked on to keep the abortion thing alive. And it, they've been experimenting with the military hell since I joined in 1974, and they were experimenting it when I retired in, in 2000. You know, the don't ask, don't tell, the segregation, desegregation. We're not a, a experiment. We're a force that is trained to kill people and protect this country. And you can't mess with that. And no matter what anybody says, the U.S. military is going to protect us no matter how many idiots they try to put above it. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, when you, um, well, I'm thinking about the Democrats can't run on the economy. They can't run on national security. They can't run on, we've reduced inflation. They can't run on, we restored some fiscal sanity. The only thing the Democrats can run on today is make it appear that Republicans are trying to stop women from having an abortion. 
I mean, that, that's it. That's their hand. That's their best. And they know that's their best hand. But, but the shame of a party who can't win on anything other than convincing moderate Americans that Republicans are trying to stop women from making decisions about their personal health and well-being. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll speak to the public and the moderates of why they believe that's appropriate and acceptable. But that's kind of the Democrats' game plan. Let's talk about abortion because we've really screwed up everything else. There is to screw up. I tweeted yesterday, and I know we got to take a break. I get the music. I tweeted yesterday or the day before. Um, remember when that political neophyte was in the White House and Russia invaded Ukraine and Hamas was killing Jews in Israel and a million men and women were coming across our border without any idea who they are? Thank God we've got a seasoned veteran <laughs> in the White House. Thank God we've got an adult, mature man. In, in, in the White House. And we hadn't gone to China funding yet. We'll get to that as soon as we kind of put a bow on, well, you never put a bow on the Palestinian-Jewish conflict, but as soon as we kind of move from that uh, into something else. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We're waiting on a call, if I'm not mistaken, from Tanya Brown. Am I right? Tanya J. Tanya Powers. Powers. I'm sorry, not Tanya Brown. She's a local <laughs> um, media figure, news lady here. Uh, from the PD region, 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, do we have her or not? Okay. Yep, phone's dropped. Do we have Actually, anybody? We had, we had several calls on hold, and they all dropped. So We're having an issue again. Maybe so. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a weekly thing. I mean, it, it you is. Know, Almost daily. Happened sure. yesterday, I mean, too. I don't get frustrated about it. I don't get bothered by it. I mean, we host a call and talk radio show. The phones work about half the time. Yeah. I mean, it, that's just, you know. We're, 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 we're anyway, that's um story for, for another day. <laughs> I know. Uh, if, if here comes the rant, what do we know if, if, if the, if the Republicans let, let's think of this for a second, cause I want to go back to Ryan Schmelz's comments about, and I'll ask you and Josh this. So if the Republicans can make progress on securing the border, are we willing to fund additionally Ukraine? Is that a, is that a deal you'd sign up for? I mean, we, we, we preach we don't get everything we mm -hmm. want. I mean, mm -hmm. we say that over and over but and over again. Would that be the compromise? So, so would that be the compromise? Hmm. I mean, as a conservative Republican, as a limited government Republican, who doesn't really, I mean, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I am far more inclined because of my adherence to the biblical worldview. I'm far more inclined to be supportive of aid to Israel than I am aid to Ukraine. I readily accept that a lot of that is skewed by my biblical worldview. I'm a Southern boy, grew up in church. Um, I'd be scared my mom would come out of the grave and get me if I didn't at every turn um, support Israel's interest. But, but I, I, I kind of want to go down that road a bit further and okay. explore some, some, um, some compromises that I think Democrats and Republicans will offer up to one another, border security, aid to Ukraine. Uh, there seemed to be a consensus in the aid uh, to Israel. But right now we've got our resident expert, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, expert. Uh, I know she's a Fox News radio personality, but as far as we're concerned, she is the go-to lady <laughs> on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right. Tanya J. Powers in New York. Good morning, ma'am. How are you? Good morning. And to be clear, I am a journalist, not a personality. Okay, I'm um, sorry. I'm sorry. So I'm, sorry. I, I'm not an opinion person, so okay. I, I, I that just wanted to clarify that. Well, it's a lot more fun being a personality <laughs> than it is being being a journalist, I've got no interest in being what you guys have to be, but I congratulate and applaud you. Okay, okay. Um, give me the news take on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. 
Well, I can tell you that the inductees list is uh, Kate Bush, Cheryl Crow, Missy Elliott, George Michael, Willie Nelson, Rage Against the Machine, The Spinners. Um, in the musical influence category, there's uh, Link Ray. Uh, there is, and if you don't know who that is, Google that because those chords and that guitar work is amazing. Uh, DJ Cool Herc, who is the father of hip hop, and he's the one who started the whole thing. Um, musical excellence category, Shaka Khan. Bernie Taupin is in this category this year. Uh, very glad to see him in that one because his words were the thing that, you know, his teamwork with Elton John put them, put Elton John on the map, basically, um, you know, back in the day. His his words and his songs, he's written so many of them that most of us could sing by heart. And if, you, if you're not aware that that's who wrote that, um, there you go. Uh, he's also got a, a brand new memoir out uh, as well. But uh, the Ahmed Erdogan Award goes to Don Cornelius this year. So the it, the... This is the first time it's been back in Brooklyn since the pandemic. Uh, I covered it in 2019 when it was there. Uh, I'll be there again tonight to cover this. And the, uh, I mean, the inductees list is always, you know, quite, you know, something. I mean, this is, you know, kind of a who's who in itself. This time, it is like everybody has come back for this one because the the performers and the presenters uh, list is is huge as well. Um, Elton John, Stevie Nicks. Um, Carrie Underwood is going to be there, Queen Latifah, LL Cool J, Brandi Carlisle, Chris Stapleton. I mean, there's just, it kind of goes on and on. Tanya, Willie Nelson is an interesting, I think you and I a couple of years back discussed Dolly Parton being, uh, you know, yeah. inducted and nominated to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, it, it, I mean, you don't know and I don't know, but wonder what went through the process of thinking Willie Nelson belonged in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, I can kind of tell you a little bit and shed some light on that because in order to be inducted, uh, the nominees, the nominee ballots are sent to more than a thousand artists and historians and members of the music industry. They look at a lot of different things when it goes into deciding, you know, nominees and, and people they vote for. They look at an artist's music impact and the influence on others. They look at the depth and the length of their career and the body of work, the innovation. I'm sorry. Obviously, we, we are having phone line issues. We, we lost Tanya in the middle of the the interview. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Is there anybody other than is, is there is Bernie Toppin, the guy that has written more songs that people know but don't know who wrote? I mean, give me another yep. example. No, I, mean, I can't think of. Okay, it. give give me a rival to Bernie Toppin. I mean, give me a guy that wrote a lot of songs, and you go, "Wow, I didn't know he wrote those songs." Um, I mean, Toppin wrote about or co-wrote the majority of Elton John's work. That's right. I mean, he wrote nearly all of his yep. songs. Um, I mean, Elton John was the composer of the majority of music, and Toppin would come up with the lyrics. But but if you ask the man on the street who Bernie Toppin is, you and I would know because we're kind of music junkies, especially from that period, that era. Um, Josh, did you know who Bernie Toppin was? I have no idea. Ah, see, I didn't think you would. And it would probably be crazy how many people would not know even our age rev don't know bernie Toppin, mm -hmm. and you play this song he wrote that okay that song wow okay that song it's a little bit like we uh my wife and i were driving somewhere one day and i had my apple's music on and she's not anywhere near as interested in the the consequence of music as i am the um the social commentary that music provides she likes the beat she likes it you know the way it sounds yep. uh and kind of like you I mean, you can relate to that yeah so uh, we're playing Tom Petty, 
and I played a Petty song and another song and another song. And about the fourth Tom Petty song, it kind of surprised me when she said, that's Tom Petty again. That was the ultimate compliment mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned for Tom Petty. He wrote that. He sang that and that and that and that. Bernie Toppin would be would be that. He wrote that and that and that. But, wow. but he never sang a song. Never sang it. Never, yeah. never sang a song. Yeah, he just and was it, collaborated with Elton John. But it's been such a, a force in Elton John's career. And Elton John, I mean, we're talking about Willie Nelson being iconic. I mean, there's no doubt that Elton John is iconic. Uh, 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Uh, we've got a, a special feature in store. Uh, we don't have we don't have the three members of the delegation. We've got a sole member of the delegation. And this delegation hour brought to you by the John Fetterman Hoodie Company. Um, right, right. <laughs> we actually have a sponsor for the delegation hour, and it's not the John Fetterman um, Hoodie Company. Uh, I don't know who it is, but uh, you know, I know that I heard the salespeople talk about. Um, there was such enjoyment of our listeners to hear from our delegation that we drummed up a, a sponsor. Um, Josh has a, a surprise in store. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, a lady that has worked with me for about 20 years had her father pass away this week and the funeral is in Conway at 11 this morning and I got to get there. So I'm bugging out at about nine 40 to make sure I can get there in time. And Rev and I were talking yesterday about what to do. Uh, well, I mean, you guys listen. So we'll take a break at about 940. We'll get back at about 945 or 6. And then we'll go to about 54 or 5. And that's the end of the show. So Rev and I were talking about what to do with that nine minutes of airtime once I bug out to go uh, and pay my respects to a person who has been very kind to me and gracious to me. And Rev said, we can put Glenn Beck on, or if you want to play one of these, I mean, you got some things you hear lined up. And I said, what if we let Josh, what if we let Josh host his own nine-minute version of the radio show? So Rev opens the door and inquires to Josh, would you like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It didn't take him long. No, it did not take, and he didn't stop smiling the rest of the day. Josh has made no bones about it. Now, here's the funny part behind the scenes. Representative Philip Lowe's with us here. So, Philip, yesterday... When Josh and, and Rev start talking about, you know, what's going to happen, Rev says, look, I never said I'm a radio show host. I mean, Ken yeah. drags me into these conversations yeah. at times, but it's my job to produce it. Or not produce it, but to make sure everything works as it should, to convey the phone calls, to basically be kind of an air traffic controller yeah. is what Rev support, does here. I'm here if you need me. Yeah. You know, but, but, but then Rev says running. to Josh, you're the guy who said you wanted your own radio show. <laughs> I've never said I wanted my own so you can take those nine minutes and do what you choose to do, and that was the green light. Wasn't it, Rev? It was. I mean, that, that was the green light. The look in Josh's eyes was similar to a 16-year-old boy. Well, I'll just look at that. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll stop right there. But, but anyway, anyway, um, at about 9.45-ish until the end of the show, at about 9.55-ish, the floor will be Josh's, and I have no idea what he's going to discuss or or talk about. Well, well we, that we, makes two of us. <laughs> we we cleared it up too during during this last break a couple of minutes ago because early this morning when we talked about it, I gave him the option. I said, "Now, what role do you want me to play? I can stay here just sitting where I'm sitting, and you're sitting where you're sitting. I'll be support as normal and chime in if needed, whatever. Or I can totally leave the room and let you handle it by yourself. Or if you want to sit in." Ken's throne to do the show. I'll I'll sit in the producer's seat and run the board for you, and and he decided that he'd like to do it on his own. So when you leave, I'm going to leave. Okay. Oh, oh. 
Mm-hmm. He's a little cocky. Who's going to answer the phone? Huh? I mean, there's got to be 15 or 20 <laughs> single chicks wanting to talk to Josh. <laughs> yeah, the young buck with his own. With his own we discussed that. He, he'll, he'll, just, he, will, he will take the calls blind in that case if somebody calls. <laughs> uh, I, I want to go down this road with, with Representative Lowe. Um, he's, the, he's the only member of the delegation. And we knew the other two weren't going to be here um, today. I told Red this morning they both had conflicts. But Philip uh, is here. Do, do, do you believe it's advantageous for you to come on the show, not and talk to me, but rather talk to your constituency? Well, it's either that or go talk to a shrink. I mean, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to get these crazy ideas out somewhere. Uh, and, you know, I, I love coming. It's, a, it's an enjoyable part of the week. I look forward to it. And I look forward to talking to constituents. And I, I, I hope. It's better than mailing mailers. They look out for six seconds and throw in the trash can. I hope they can get into my mind a little bit, see if I'm the guy they want. I mean, that this is not my seat. This is their seat. So it, I feel like every week I'm trying to tell them who I am, what I believe in, and the chips fall where they may come election time. And and, and I, once again, and, and Philip has a reputation of calling it like he sees it, not being the most politically correct person at certain times. Um, I can relate to that. I mean, that would be something you and I have kind of in, in common, but, but d- d- I believe this Philip and I want to get your take, but it's easy for me to say what I believe. Cause I'm not asking people to vote for me. I mean, you guys have to be very careful about, you know, taking my advice to heart, but, but I believe that, that, that office holders today are rewarded more than they've ever been for honestly telling the people what they believe. I think Trump is a symbol of that. He's a representation of I may not like what he said, but I think the guy really meant it when he said X, Y, or Z. Do you buy into that? I think people want some plain spoke language they can hear. That political speak where you just make it sound good and flower it up a little bit and and and, and everybody feels kind of rah-rah at the end of it, but you can't always follow through on it. You know, we make promises. The promises basically mean if we get a chance – to make something happen, this is how we see it, how we would vote. But it's a bigger, it's a bigger deal. Look at the the U.S. Congress now. So the House passes a bill basically saying we'll support Israel. Well, of course, the Democrats say, well, that's not enough, you know. And it's surprising to hear, well, they want to support, I guess, Taiwan and and also Ukraine all at the same time. And of course, they're they're all about spending money. I, I kind of got this feeling like. Ukraine's funneling money back to the Democrat Party. I mean, that's that's my gut feeling behind this. Why are they so interested in that? Because somebody's making money out of that deal, and and it may not be the Ukrainians. It it may be something sliding back in the in the form of of it, potential payoffs to Biden and his family, but also something that's coming back to the Democrat Party to put. And they just circulate the money. Our money goes to the the Democrat Party. They send it somewhere else. Who? sends it back in to political uh, contributions. But Philip, is, what is the most, what is the issue in Columbia? And I know you got to think about this for a second. What is the issue in Columbia where Democrats and Republicans are most divided? I mean, is it abortion? Is it taxes? Is it regulation? I mean, I know we have different philosophies. That's why we have two parties. I mean, if you think this way, you kind of end up there. If you think that way, you end up over here where we are. But, but in, in Columbia... I mean, the, the, the division is, 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 I mean, it's obvious in Washington. I mean, there's a, not just an opposition, I mean, there's a dislike and disdain that the two parties and their, their power brokers have of one another. I mean, in Columbia, is there an issue or two where there's just so much daylight 
between the two, there's no way to really sit down and come to a, a resolution that could be bipartisan. You know, we have a abortion debate every year. It just whether it's part of the uh, the budget or a special standalone bill, we hear that that's probably the most partisan one. That's the one that's most emotional, uh, and and it can last for hours or days. And and I mean, I'm tired of talking about it. It is over and over and over. Um, now it finally means something because what the state says may likely stand, and the Supreme Court says it will stand, at least the last one we did. So you feel like the last one was worth all the effort, but I'd say abortion was the worst. You know, they they are highly supportive of of giving out money, and especially pay raises, state employees, things like that. And so we don't differ greatly on that, but, but no matter what number we come up with behind the scenes with them, they come on the floor and want to spout about, oh, it should be five more percent, and they deserve this and that. So that's another area. I presume there's a lot of Democrats that are in uh, the government, of state government, that have, are employed there, and that's where they're trying to support them. But uh, most of the things that that see a lot of the headlines are probably overflows from Washington and the problems that they create up there, and we end up trying to you know, take care of this ESG and all the different uh, ABCs of, of bills that have come through that we've tried to fight back against Washington. That you have to sort through as a as a uh, ruling majority. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Jim in Florence, good morning. You are on with Representative Lowe. Hey, good morning. So we saw with Elon Musk on Joe Rogan's program, you know, he talked about why he bought Twitter because he needed to take on the woke mind virus that was coming out of San Francisco. Uh, we know about uh, the woke culture that perpetuated itself through higher education. Uh, what we don't talk a lot about is that woke culture that's, that's uh, made its way through um, primary public education um, with these teacher unions um, that, that want their teachers to push um, homosexual and transgender propaganda, not, not to teenagers, which is bad enough, but to little children. Um, but the other area that's not getting a lot of attention in our state is uh, the medical profession. Um, you know, you saw what months ago, MUSC put out training videos teaching doctors how to uh, convince the parents to leave the room so they could talk to little Johnny about whether he wanted to be a little girl or a little boy. Um, the next problem we have is Atrium Health, uh, which operates in South Carolina, they're based out of Charlotte, um, has changed their privacy policy uh, for children, and you can and you can fact check me. You can go to you can go Google Carolina Care RX one no no spaces uh, age of majority, um, and a PDF will pop up, and it talks about how uh, parents will no longer have access to their children's prescription information uh, through Atrium Health prescription portal. Um, you know, they, they, they come up to our children in education and through uh, media, and now they're coming after our children through, um, uh, through the medical profession right here in this state, not, not in California, not in New York, but right here in South Carolina. What are we doing to protect our children and protect the relationship between parents and children with, when it comes to the medical profession? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. Uh, you know, the beauty of this show is people can bring subjects up 
and problems up and we can start figuring out, do we need to do something? Does government need to solve this or does it, do we solve that by who we choose to go to? Do, do we want to go to prison if, if that's going to be their policy? Unfortunately, these policies seem to perpetuate if you don't make a big stink or, or go after it. Uh, so this is one. I appreciate the call, and, and i got to think about how to do that. Nobody should have any right over our children from any education or medical profession. I mean, th- those are our kids. But there are some things that, you know, you, you can debate. You know, if you want to go to school, you have to have a certain shot or two, you know, some immunizations sure. because we've proven that that people can have a lot of diseases spread quickly in a little small school where people are crowded up in a, in a location. So, you know, some of this stuff you have to think about a little bit, certainly not the COVID vaccine, but some of these polio vaccines and some things have really made serious differences in in our health and in our lives uh, may need some government discussion. But, 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 but I know you well enough, and, I, and Jay and Mike aren't here, but there's no way you would allow, if, if you knew about it, a, a health care agency to allow a kid to make a big decision without parental consent or parental involvement. Now, the second they said for you to step out of the room, yeah, <laughs> I'd be asking my doctor to step out of the room. But, but here's what I want to say <laughs> to, to all, and because I've done this, guys. I mean, I, I've been a citizen legislator. I've never... Uh, I've never been a professional politician. I mean, I know you accept that 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 stigma that is associated with being a politician, but I mean, Philip is a business guy, uh, and and I and I believe the left has taken great advantage of citizen legislators who have to go home and make a living, and provide for their family and keep their business afloat and run and run their livelihoods. Um, I'm not saying it, it's malice or, or or nefarious intent, but the reality is. Some of these, I mean, it's their full-time job to run those medical endeavors. It's not Lowe or Rickenbach or Jordan's full-time job. And I think you become more aware when a caller brings up a situation like that. Now you are able to say, okay, who do I need to call and find out whether we can do something about this or not? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think I'll call into my staff. And they're not exclusively my staff, but on ways and means. And I'll hear something that I just didn't like or you know, heard around town, just like this on the radio. And I'll call up and say, check into this for me. What's what's up with this? Because that's their job. That's their full-time job. Yep. And, and they'll come back and give me some ideas. Then I may call people who are lobbyists in there and say, what's going on with this? Is, you know, is this spreading? Is this something we've got to start making laws about? And sometimes just asking those questions can tamp down some you know, own that problem. And, and you don't have to necessarily pass a law. You just let them know, hey, I'm watching this, and it cools off some. So I appreciate the call, Jim. Yeah, well explained. Hey, we do have a sponsor of the Delegation Hour. It's the Delegation Hour. <laughs> Greystone Properties is our Friday sponsor of uh, when when normally three, sometimes two. Today, it's only one. But thanks to Greystone Properties for agreeing to be uh, the replacement for the John Fetterman hoodie company. <laughs> we'll take a break. Back in a few. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Our delegation hour is a single member of our delegation. I want to thank Greystone Properties again for sponsoring um, the conversation that Representative Lowen and myself are having and our callers. And I think we got somebody on the phone, right? Yep. Tim Great. and Florence, you are on with Representative Lowe. Hey there, guys. How are y'all? Hey, hey Tim. Hey, real quick. I uh, first off, Representative Lowe, I appreciate all you do to help with schools i just wanted to get your thoughts with um you know the pya issue and 
you know, taxpayer dollars, you know, being, you know, obviously not distributed correctly. And just wanted to see what your thoughts are with this whole situation going on here locally. And I'll take it off the air. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, before Philip answers, I'll explain. Um, I mean, I'm doing a deep dive. I had about six or eight private messages on Facebook inquiring about, you know, did we know about this money that is, um, the superintendent is making very public his concern about this charter school and an operating outside of bounds is supposed to be suspended operations. It's still operating. There's still money circulating. There's still money in bank accounts. There's still checks being written. And, and I think his biggest concern is law enforcement. I'm talking about the solicitor's office. I would imagine are not aggressively pursuing um, some sort of resolution. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll let Philip jump in here in a second. I mean, I don't know what the legislature can do. Um, I, I do know what I'm trying to do as a, <laughs> you ready? As a quasi journalist, uh, I'm trying to gather as much of the facts and information as I can and then present it to the, the consuming public in the most honest fashion that I can. But I want to thank you uh, out there in listener land for sending me some of the, uh, some of the private messages you have sent me, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't appear to me very, very complicated. Um, it appears to me that there is financial theft. I mean, there, there is fraud happening. There's a misrepresenting of where taxpayer dollars are being spent, how they're being spent. Um, and I don't know if you want to delve into any, any of that. Um, there's a charter school that operated uh, with funding of District 1. They didn't adhere to some of the laws and regulations, and they basically got shut down, but they ain't shut down. I mean, they're still operating. They're still, well, I say when operating, I don't know if they got kids there, but they're still writing checks and have money, money in bank accounts. Is that something that the General Assembly could inquire about or, or ask for the assistance of the Attorney General? Yeah, they can. I, I can call SLED today and talk with them. I don't know if it's a lot of criminal stuff or, or a tit for tat, you know, people mad about, about it. You know, I support alternatives to just, you know, one monopolistic, you know, school system. So, but apparently this one has failed already, and if there's leftover money, we need to find out how to do something constructive with it. So I'll call SLED and ask them to look into it. Yeah, and, and I think the biggest concern, Philip, that the majority, I mean, the people that I talk to, and once again, I, I'm not on the school board, I'm not involved in the school district, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but the biggest concern I've heard, and I guess this is where you could help, and I know you well enough to know you will, is local, um, the, the people who could indeed be aggressive and getting to the bottom of this or choosing to not be as aggressive as many people wish they were. And I don't know why. Is, that, is there some kind of minority issue? Is this, I, I don't is this have kind any of idea. a minority school or something? And you know this. I mean, I can say it. You won't, you won't be offended by it. I mean, this is when Jay and Mike would squirm a little bit. But, I mean, if you're a Democrat, you got to be careful with African-American votes. I mean, that's just honest. I mean, you know, I know that you and I will kind of call it like we, like we see it. I mean, you and I have to be careful with gun folks and, and you know, um, church folks and business people. I mean, they're always – these subsets of electorates that you've got to be careful with and how you um, navigate some of the complexities. But, but you know, a, a, a Democrat officeholder in the PD region uh, always has to consider, you know, the, um, the fallout if it involves the African-American community. And I think this school involves, um, you know, the African-American aspect of that. Yeah, well, I mean, that – that may insulate them a little bit in some people's eyes, but uh, I'll but the, call SLED today. Okay. We'll, we'll see what – I'll get them to call the solicitor and see what's going on. Here's, here's what I'll do. I'll forward you what has been forwarded to me. 
And these are credible people. These aren't troublemakers or rabble-rousers. I mean, these are credible people. And thank you for not putting it public. I mean, they've sent me some of this, I don't want to say confidential information, but some of these canceled checks. I mean, you've seen it, Rev. I mean, mm-hmm. you've seen some of the um, mm-hmm. some of what's happening on um, on Facebook and social media and, and whatnot. Well, and the but superintendent came on the show and talked Came on it. the show and basically pleaded with local law enforcement. I'm not talking – I think the sheriff's office is at the mercy of, you know, the, 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 the political – part of of law enforcement. And, and the Facebook post I've seen recently um, documents some additional things that have happened even since it has well, gone I mean, public. Let, let's be candid. I mean I'm not I'm not I'm not taking this personal with anybody, but there there's a there's a concern that the solicitor has not been as interested in this as most wish he would. And I mean it, you know is he or is he not? I don't know. Don't have any idea. But the the emails and and private messages that I've received lead me to believe that the the biggest concern is there are big problems here. There are monies being misspent. There's not accountability for taxpayer dollars, and the solicitor is just not as interested or aggressively inquiring as a lot of constituency would. And and I know you you know you have kind of a an inroad to SLED as a member of the General Assembly, and I think saying that I will talk to SLED and see what I can find out should be very encouraging uh, to a lot of our listeners. Well, I don't know. I had just a minute ago to the sheriff call. So maybe he's got some info, but we'll dig into this and see if there's public money at stake here. Let's get to the bottom of it and spend it where it needs to be, not not wasted wherever it may still be sitting. Well said. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Representative Philip Lowe is with us to delegation hour. I want to once again thank our sponsor, Greystone Properties. Um We've not touched on this. Got about 10 minutes or so. I'm going to get your take. All, I mean, when, when all three of you are in here, there are five people in a room, one in another room, who have uh, professed their faith in Christianity. That means we ascribe to the Judeo-Christian ethic that has been uh, transformational in the modern world. Do you have an opinion of the situation in Israel. You're a, you're a state lawmaker. You don't decide whether we fund, you know, excursions in Ukraine or, or Israel, but, but, but you're still an observer of politics. You're a person with an opinion. Kind of walk me through what you think of the situation in Israel and, and Gaza and the West Bank and the Middle East in general. I think man is sinful at nature. I think we want our neighbors we lust after our neighbors' wives, after their kids, after their uh, land, their money. It's always been like that. That's not going to change. We, we think we're civilized now. and we've, We were born in some enlightened time. No, you go back. I think I've done this on there before. And search. And just go to YouTube and search for a time lapse of the boundary changes, say, in Europe or the Middle East over the last thousand years. And just watch that and think about every time the borders change in that area, and it's real clear to kind of get a quick peek at it. It happened because somebody was dying. Somebody was kicking somebody else's tail and taking what they wanted from them. Now, let me tell you, if you want to keep something in this world, you have to be able to defend it. You have to have a military that's going to take care of it. Uh, people want power, and they want your stuff, and they'll come and get it whenever they can. They always have. They always will. We're not going to change it. We're not going to what we're doing now is is we've got a religion behind it. Now, here's what a religion does to it. 
it changes from, well, I'll defend my country to I'm going to go to heaven if I die. Now, when you got people willing to die so they can go get on the, the boat tomorrow and go straight to heaven, well, that's a whole different fanatic. And that's what you're dealing with every time you play in the Middle East to the Muslims, the Christians, the, the Jews. It, it's an incendiary problem that could just go crazy or do its normal every 10 years. We fight about things and do a bunch of bloody, ugly stuff to each other and not a whole lot of borders change, but a little bit goes here and there. I, I don't know that I can solve it. I don't know that anybody can because it's it's thousand centuries. <laughs> Who knows that they've been fighting over that land? And at some point, somebody has occupied it all the way from Genghis Khan to the, the Roman church. You know, I mean, I don't know how you ever say whose place it is or whose chosen people. You read that Bible. They're the chosen people. Well, I'm sure Mohammed thinks differently, you know, and whenever he had his Bible written, uh, the Quran, I guess. Uh, so that's a long answer, and all I did was confuse the matter There's more. no short answer to that, but but I want to ask you this, because I, I'm asking you because I want to know, am I off base here? I mean, I, barbarism is barbarism, and butchery is butchery, and I, I guess— the Christian spirit in all of us, the Judeo-Christian ethic, forces us to care about humanity no matter where it is, Ukraine. But I seem to be less inclined to want to be involved in Ukraine, Russia, than I am with Israel. Do you feel that way? I, I feel a certain tug to be supportive of Israel when I don't feel that tug as much to be supportive of Ukraine. And that's the religious point here. It pulls in something that we've been trained. Well, let me tell you, what do you think you'd be if you were born in China? What religion would you be? If you were born in Saudi Arabia, what would your religion be? If you're born in the deep South, what's your religion? So everybody's just as ingrained in their religion as you are in yours. So we, we are going to lean closer towards the Jewish folks because they're basically where our roots of Christianity came from. And also I, I, I don't know that it does anything but make the fanaticism worse. Uh, is it better that somebody blows a bomb up and, and 3,000 people die or they grab people and cut 3,000 heads off? One seems more barbaric. It all ends up with 3,000 deaths. So these guys, all they have is basically small arms that people give to them to go create trouble for the Jewish people. The Jewish people they want to kill them. They want to eradicate them. And if they could, they'd love to come get us next. And the only way you keep it tamped down is defend. You've got to have a strong military to defend your areas. You want to spend the money on Israel. Well, there's three or four or 10 other areas of the country that need money to defend themselves too. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. DW in Florence. How you're on with representative Will. Hey guys, how you doing? I'd say go Tigers. I don't know where we're going, but go Tigers anyway. <laughs> uh, say this to uh, uh, the esteemed Mr. Lou. Uh, I talked to Ken earlier in the week about um, he was talking had a bunch of questions about the Second Amendment. Now, I was thinking maybe he could get a uh, ATF agent in or FBI agent in to come and talk to him about um, the Second Amendment and how you kind of decipher through some of these laws that are there or some of these aspects of what people fuss about all the time. And I figure since Phil's there, he could uh, 
maybe shed some light on how you could get somebody to come talk to you guys because a lot of confusion out there. That's pretty simple stuff, but people want to muddy the water up so bad. I think we have somebody to come and clarify just some of the, you know, maybe five, six questions, whatever it may be, uh, to clarify some of these uh, crazy thoughts that people have about guns and gun sales and, you know, different things. So I'll leave it to you two guys. You guys are the purveyors of truth and knowledge, so I'll leave it to you guys. And, uh, again, go Tigers and go Gamecocks, I reckon. And uh, you guys have a good day. Thank you, DW. Appreciate that. You know, one of the interesting points of this learning process in Israel, I mean, I knew enough to be dangerous. I know far more now than I did two weeks ago. I've devoted a good bit of time to try and understand it better. Um, The one thing that surprises me more than anything is I would expect Israel to have some of the most, uh, some of the most encouraging gun laws in the world. I mean, if anybody needs a gun in their home to protect themselves, it'd be the the Jews in Israel. 2% gun ownership some of the most restrictive gun right laws in, in in the world, that is something America has different, uniquely different. And, and we've talked a lot about the Heller opinion and Scalia's majority opinion. It's not about shooting a snake on a, on a fishing trip. It's not about bear hunting or deer hunting or squirrel hunting. It's about the right to defend yourself and your family and your property. And that's always been a very essential part of your political personality. Well, it is. I appreciate him calling in about the Second Amendment. It near and dear to me, I think what, you know, we had a person who was in Massachusetts recently that, that had the 22 people that, that he killed, and he had a mental problem. He, he had served in the military. He had a mental problem. He went ballistic and went killed a lot of people. Um, it probably wasn't much you could do to stop that because basically you, you can't have somebody just kind of make an idle threat. You've got to, in our, in our state, you have to take somebody to a court and, and prove to the court that they should not have a weapon. So we passed that law, I think, in 15 or something, that, that gave the ability to remove someone's Second Amendment right, which is not something I want to do, but it's something that, that passed that was designed to say, all right, if, if the family, if the friends come forward and say, this guy is really getting whacked out and he's doing crazy stuff on Facebook and he's threatening people that— Let's take go to a court and ask the court to remove his guns from him. So that was done in an effort to try to stem people who have a you know, a mental illness that's getting. It looks like it's going to be you know a, a violent type of a problem, and we've already got the ability to stop people who have violent crime. We also have the ability to to have someone get their guns back if they prove they can prove they're not in that state of mind again to harm people with them. So in South Carolina, you know, you've got you've got some some laws that were created to try to stem the mental illness problem, but it takes time. And those folks, when they start seeing the things coming their way, it might trigger them. I mean, it may all of a sudden make them get worse and, and go take what they can. And it, here's the truth. If you want to get a gun, a stolen gun, or buy a gun, or get a used gun, you can buy one from your friends. You can get a gun in this country. The good thing is that's the guns are here to defend ourselves against foreign countries that are coming in and also a tyrannical government here. They weren't really for hunting. That's not, it doesn't say anything about you have a right to hunt in there. Uh, it, it says you may be in a situation where your government's so bad or any other government so bad that you need something. And if we all have something, 
And at our house, it's a lot less chance that people come after us. That's well explained. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Um, I'm out of here in about 40 minutes. I got to go to a funeral at 11 o'clock in Conway. The Josh show kicks off at 740-ish. Um, I'm sorry, 940. I said 740. 940. Uh, but before we get there, Rev is a big Beatles fan. I'm a Beatles fan. I'm probably not a big Beatles fan. I would easily admit that there are two for sures on the Mount Rushmore of rock and roll. The Stones and the Beatles. I mean, I, I think you make a fool of yourself if you say, oh, no, Queen. Oh, no, you know, um, not Van Halen or Springsteen. Or, uh, yeah, nah, forget that. I mean, we can debate the other two. But two belong absolutely. One of those bands is going to live forever. I'm convinced of that. <laughs> They'll be petrified, uh, but they're going to be living forever. The full, funniest meme I've seen on Facebook recently is Keith Richards holding a baby. And it says the oldest known picture of Betty Watt. Um, <laughs> so there's a little humor in that. Right. And and the Beatles, because of the intrigue, um, Jason Priester's with us, and we'll talk sports in, in just a second. But one of the most one of the best debate topics in sports is what if? You know, what 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 if that hadn't happened? What if this had happened? What if that quarterback hadn't gotten hurt? What if this guy had gotten drafted? What if this guy hadn't gone to Clemson, but rather South Carolina? And it's so much fun to drink and talk and tailgate about the hypotheticals, what would the Beatles be had John Lennon not have gotten killed? Mm. I mean, I think that's one of the most quintessential questions. Yeah, would they have ever gotten in the back history? Together. Yeah, would they have ever gotten back together? It's, it's pretty interesting. I've learned this through Reb. I didn't know why the Beatles broke up. I mean, I knew they broke up, but I didn't know why. Paul McCartney says, it's pretty easy. John, (laughs) John didn't want the band to be together any longer. And if John didn't want the band to be together, we're not that band any longer. Technology is something that uh, amazes me. And Rev stumbled upon something that uh, does something I can't even explain. And that's why I'll defer to the Royal Rev of radio. The Beatles have a new record. They do. Yeah. That's impossible. Called the last or the final Beatles song. That's impossible. And it was released yesterday. You would think it's impossible. So how is it possible? So the story goes like this. And if you want to see, it's such a well-done story. There is a YouTube video on the official Beatles The channel. Royal Rev is in heaven now, Oh, Josh. this is great. He is in heaven now. Well, and this is the time we would normally play a song of the week. We used to play Springsteen here. We played Eagles and George Strait and different artists. But I think it's an appropriate time to play this song. Because it is, if, if, you, if you like music, and especially if you like the Beatles... You know, this is this is monumental and it's emotional. It is to me. Um, the video Don't that's out there Don't on you YouTube. Cry. I, I Don't you cry on this radio. <laughs> the video is called uh, "Now and Then: The Last Beatles Song." It's a short film. It's on the official Beatles uh, YouTube channel, and that is about a twelve-minute documentary that that tells the whole story, just in a nutshell. Of course, John was murdered in 1980. Um, in the mid '90s, Yoko Ono gave. George, Paul, and Ringo, some cassette tapes that had John recording just things he did, I guess, at the house. I mean, just kind of, he was messing around with music. That's what he, he was did. the only person in the world that liked her. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Story for another day. <laughs> but, uh, but, but they took those recordings, and they actually did a few songs that were released in the mid-'90s, new Beatles songs. One's called Free as a Bird. One's called Real Love, if you remember it. But this song... They tried to work on, and the way it was mixed and the voice and the piano, it's just they couldn't do anything with it. So they, they kind of gave up and put it on the shelf. 
but they had recorded. George had done some guitar for it, um, they, but they just never could get it, and they just kind of set it aside. And, of course, George Harrison died of cancer in 2001. So fast forward to 2022, and now the AI technology has advanced this far along to where you remember the documentary Get Back that was produced a year, a couple of years ago. So they used AI to, to, to work on those recordings and clean them up, make them, you know, the, pull the sound out and do different things. So the, I think the guy that produced the Get Back, you know, reached out to Paul. They talked. He said, look, we can do something with this recording now for that, that one last uh, song called Now and Then. Um, so that's what they did. So they went back to the studio Paul played some bass. Ringo played some drums. They mixed in George's guitar from those sessions, and they were able to pull John's voice out to where it was clean and you know mixable the way a music producer would produce. And they've come up with this song, and it's the final Beatles song, and it is legit, as Paul says in the little documentary, because all four Beatles are contributing. Can we play it? We've got it ready to go. It was okay. released yesterday at 10 a.m. Now, I watched it on YouTube as first as soon as it came out and there were about 65,000 views of it at that point. And last time I looked last night, I think it was 3.3 million views uh, throughout the course of yesterday. Uh, but yeah, we have it. Um, we have it loaded up and ready to play Josh. Whenever you're ready, here is the final, the last Beatles song. It was released yesterday. It is called now and then. And if I make it through 
We're back. Wow. You owe me about <laughs> 10 born to runs. <laughs> you owe me about 60 Springsteen Fridays. Mm-hmm. That sounds like the Beatles. It does. That does sound like the Beatles yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Jason Priester, you think it sounds like the Beatles? Okay, uh, let's turn him up. You got him up? Yeah, you there now? I am okay, I am here now. All right. Um, you would agree with me that the Beatles and Stones are, I don't want to say in a league of their own, but they are clearly two of the greatest rock and roll bands the world has ever known. Absolutely. And there's a little irony because the Stones have a new album. I know. Yeah, their 375th album. Their combined <laughs> age is 1,412 years old. And Keith Richards, once again, is the most likely guy to die in America and, and probably will not. I mean, it's like the, the late 60s all over again, new Beatles and but new would, Stones would records. would the Beatles have been the Stones? I mean, if, the, if Lennon hadn't died and they don't and, – and let's let's settle this once and for all. Lennon was weird. Yoko might have been weirder than he was. You can't have that degree of weirdness and keep a band together. You just can't. I mean, he, he had to be an impossible guy to deal with day after day but enormously talented. And I think I've always thought that McCartney was the kind of the brain trust behind keeping all the egos in place and the personalities in place. I think the stones just drink and smoke weed and, and, and kind of <laughs> and rock rocked. and roll. Yeah, yeah. That's just kind of the way they, they, they rolled. Um, it's got about 5.1 million views on cool. their channel now. So that's, and, and to me, it's a, it's a monumental sure day. If you like music and think about their influence on, you know, the history of music since they were since they did what they did back in the in the late sixties and early seventies. Uh, it's important and monumental. Almost as, almost as influential as Dylan was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost. <laughs> that really frustrates <laughs> Rail when I when I jab him with that. So so we're talking about what is and what was. There's a good segue. What was was Clemson was a an elite football program <laughs> competing for national championships, Jason Priester. What is is something different. What exactly is Clemson football today? Mediocre. Whoa. <laughs> wow. Hey, you are what your record says you are. You're right. Clemson's 500. I mean, they have not lost back-to-back games since 2011. They've done that now. They've not lost back-to-back-to-back games since 2010, and they are staring that in the face this weekend. This is this is, this program is a shell of his former self. Um, I, I don't care how many five stars, four stars, however many you got on your team. Clemson's got the fifth most on that team in the country. Fifth highest blue chip rate. But when you watch them play on Saturday, it's not translating to the field. And, and I, you know, I think Dabo Sweeney fully believed that if he revamped that offense, got, got, got Garrett Riley in there to retool that thing and change that scheme, that that was going to fix a lot of their issues. And I think he's finding out now they have deeper-seated issues and he's got some more work to do. Jason, I sent you a text Sunday or Monday, and, and I think you would agree with me. The biggest issue is the – I mean, Clemson was fortunate to have generational quarterback play in consecutive quarterbacks. There's a reason it's called generational. It doesn't happen back-to-back, but it did. And Clemson yeah, called lightning in a bottle. They had two phenomenally talented quarterbacks, and they had a run. But But – some other things have happened, and, and by that I mean the staff, um, Thad Turnipseed, Brent Venables, you believe, and I don't put words in your mouth, but you believe that Venables, or have led me to believe, you never said this, you've led me to believe that Venables was the, the spoon that stirred the drink, so to speak. He was the intensity barometer for Clemson football, but, but you've also got Kirby Smart recruiting Georgia. 
Mac Brown recruiting North Carolina. The things that were perfectly aligned ain't so perfectly aligned. So I don't know that it's one thing, but but it could be a multitude of things. No, I don't think I don't think it is just one thing. I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's a number of things, and it's kind of snowballed. Georgia getting good at the, at the absolute wrong time for Clemson. You know, um, you, you don't have the quarterback play you did with Watson and Lawrence, and you don't have those frisbee catching dogs out at wide receiver that you had Mike Williams, T. Higgins. You know, the freshman version of Justin Ross before he started getting hurt. Um, guys like that, Sammy Watkins and Nuke Hopkins. There's not one of those guys on this team. And this team this year does not do any of the little things right. They lead the FBS in fumbles lost, not just this year, going back to the beginning of last year. So so this isn't just some trend that just started. It's been going on. They were kind of able to mask it and, you know, cover up some of those inefficiencies last year. But they're not been able to do that this year. Just just uh, I think you got a young, inexperienced quarterback. <clears throat> Excuse me, with without with very little playmakers around him and an offensive line that is porous. It it has gotten worse, progressively worse, going back four games and, and each passing week they get worse and worse. And now the injuries are starting them out. They already lost one starter earlier in the season. They lost another one this week. I don't know if a lot of people know about that. He's not gonna play Saturday. You're dealing with another another starter that's banged up. So that's three of your five right there. And a good football team's coming to town. Yeah, a very good football team's coming to town. A team that kind of had its way with Clemson up in South Bend last year, and, and I know they're going to use that for motivation. But I mean, I, I, does anybody have any faith in that Clemson offense? Well, I mean, Jason, here's what I've watched, and I, we've got a minute here. We'll take a break and come back with another segment. Here's what I watched, and I watched a lot of football in my life. Played a little bit. Clemson still got dudes on the D line. They still got some dudes at the second level of their of their defense. But but about everywhere else they look average. That to me it starts. Is that? I mean, would you agree they've got dudes on the D line? Yeah, I, I think that that defense is littered with talent, um, and they're deep along that defensive line. They're going to lose some guys this year, but they got some guys behind them that are really good too. One of them from right here in Hartsville, Demonte Capehart. But um, that that offense has just been transformed. And if you dig a little bit deeper into it, that's where all the inexperience on the coaching staff is. You know, I, I, you got Garrett Riley kind of, you know, leads that thing right now. And he, he's been around the block, coached at a lot of different schools. He, he's, he's experienced. But behind him, you, you've got passing game coordinator Kyle Richardson, who's been at Clemson a long time, but they plucked him out of the high school ranks. Yeah, I mean, he, I love Kyle Richardson. I think he's a very bright, offensive-minded coach, but he's got no experience outside of Clemson. Tyler Griffin's been an on-field assistant for four years. He, he's the wide receivers coach. C.J. Spiller, the running backs coach, two years. No coaching experience outside of Clemson. Thomas Austin, the offensive line coach, four years. Two of them at Georgia State, now two at Clemson. So when, when things start to go wrong, you don't have a lot of experience, to, outside experience, to kind of to kind of lean on and, and try to right the ship. You, you know what you know, and it's the Clemson way. And I, I think Dabo Sweeney maybe hired too many inexperienced coaches and too short a period of time sound like tyler from spartanburg we'll take a break we'll be back in just a few moments 843-661-0937 is the number jason priester from all clemson tigers.com is with us um so we we've tried to do a bit of an evaluation on the clemson program it is what it is and the guy that got all the credit is going to get a lot of the blame that's just the way the world works i mean the economy's the president's fault if it's good 
It's his benefit if it's excuse me if it's bad. It's his benefit if it's good. Um, Travis from Spartanburg, Tyler from Spartanburg. I'm sorry, <laughs> Tyler from Spartanburg took Dabo to task, and Dabo wasn't having none of it. What What are the reverberations in Clemson about that interesting phone call? You know, I think the guy actually, he called in and he probably has some valid points. I, just, I think most of the fan base just think he went about it in the wrong way because it ended up kind of being, you know, a personal attack and you bring up his salary and then, and then you take it as far as mocking his faith. And when you do that, I don't, I think that's something he's, he's going to push back on and he kind of pushed back pretty hard on it. And I, I was kind of surprised to see as many folks in the national media once they heard the audio kind of say, yeah, I'm kind of leaning with Dabo on this one. You know, I figured they were just going to pile on and it, it didn't play out that way. But, you know, most of the people in the fan base, they liked it. They they were glad to see some fiery Dabo. And, I, and I've heard that it has absolutely carried over to the practice field this week, that it's been very chippy and he has put them all on notice. Well, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, they staged it. Yeah, I mean, right. Dabo picked somebody <laughs> out there to, to call kind of... in. You, you say you don't believe it, but but something like that wouldn't make sense. No, I don't think this was staged. This is a guy that's been on Twitter railing about firing Dabo for weeks. If you're going to stage something like that, you don't use him to do it. Um, and and I, I know a couple people over there at that radio station, they're familiar with who sure. he is. He, he's always on the text line, so, so they know who he is. So I don't think this was that. And, um but I do think he, he he had some things he wanted to get off his chest. And, and I think this caller provided the perfect opportunity to do that. And, and that's why we didn't see him get cut off. And he was able to talk for several minutes and go on and on. And, you know, Dabo let him get to a certain point and then said what he needed to say. And we got to talk to, I think it was Barrett Carter this week, and they, they at linebacker for Clemson, and they asked him what he thought about his head coach having to go to bat for him like that. He said, you know, we love it, but we also don't like it. We don't like our head coach having to go to bat for us and putting his neck out on the line for us. We want to play good enough to where he doesn't have to do that. So, you know, I, I can see both sides of it. But, but Jason, I mean, I, I, I tried to use the example of, I mean, it, it's a minor, it's a, it's a much more minor sport. But when the Gamecocks were on that role in college baseball, they won back-to-back championships, played for a third championship, there was a feeling amongst Gamecock faithful that this is normal. Ain't nothing normal about winning two championships and playing for a third. There just ain't. I mean, if it were normal, it happened a lot. What, what The success Clemson enjoyed is very abnormal. It doesn't happen many places in America. And, and I think Clemson's expectations, I mean, I think Dabo said it well. When, you're, when your expectations so far exceed your appreciation, you, you got you to gotta revisit that. I mean, I think Clemson should be better than they are. But to believe you're going to play for a national championship every other year, it's just unrealistic. I 100% believe that there are a lot of people in the Clemson fan base that got overly spoiled with, with what happened and what transpired during those six years of playoff runs, and they came to expect it every year. And it's not going to happen, especially at a program like Clemson, where Dabo Sweeney has been adamant. He has never wavered, 100% says it all the time, anytime he's asked about it. I run a developmental program. I mean, he says that over and over. He's made no bones about it. Now it's up to the fans whether they hear it or accept it. No, and a lot of them don't. They expect Clemson to be competing for national championships every year, and it's not very realistic. Um, 
I, I've kind of thought the program was at a crossroads for a couple of years now. And I think it's really at that crossroads now. Cause I, I really do think there are some spots he needs to address in there. And I, I think he probably thinks that too, but can't do that to the off season. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, I think some fans in this fan, some fans inside this fan base got spoiled and if it's over and Clemson never makes another playoff, I think there are going to be a lot of fans who regret they didn't enjoy that ride more than they did when it was happening. But then, but that tends to be every fan base. You you kind of you get spoiled. You don't enjoy it. You kind of say, "Well, I mean, we deserve that." You know, you don't deserve any any of that. Okay, I'm, I'm going to throw this out there because I'm going to get your take. It. Um, we talked about Kirby Smart. We talked about Mac Brown. We talked about recruiting. We talked about a lot of these different things. But the one thing that Dabo has been stubborn about, and I'll use the word stubborn. Is this new reality called NIL and the transfer portal? Can Dabo Sweeney bring Clemson back without participating or accepting or even embracing NIL and the transfer portal? See, I think Dabo's views on NIL are kind of um, get twisted. I don't think he's against it. I don't think he hates it. I think a lot of his words have been twisted and taken out of context, and, and people don't go and l- listen to the whole quote. Um Clemson's got two very well-funded NIL collectives. He built he built the first of its kind NIL building out there at Clemson, first of its kind in the country. I think he's embraced that rather well. Um, Clemson's got players making good NIL money. It's just he he doesn't want to see the sport go to where there's players' unions and it be professionalized and schools are playing salaries. Although that's where we're heading. That that I think that's what he's railed against. He he likes to see it more focused on the education. But I would agree he's been slow to kind of come around to the portal. No doubt about it. Because um, it's counterculture. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, if you build your program on a brand and a culture and a buy-in, all of a sudden the transfer portal, you hire a player for a year. Florida State hired players for a year. They're in the damn playoffs right now if we were to play uh, the 14 playoff this week. They didn't build it through culture and, and persistent recruiting. They went out and found – a game cock or two <laughs> that could play, and and here they are. But you've also heard Dabo Sweeney say if he was a guy like Jeff Scott just getting hired at South Florida, I'd be living in the portal. You know, I really think he thought he had enough talent on that team where he didn't have to go live in the portal. What but- made him think that? Because I'm not Dabo, and I'm not the, 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 the scouting guru that says he can play or not, but, but it's obvious they don't have as much talent as they thought they had. You know, I, from my understanding – he really thought they were going to be really good this year, the way they practiced throughout fall camp. And he was about as surprised as anybody, the way they laid that egg up in Durham against Duke. You know, for whatever reason, whatever they're doing in practice does not translate to the to the playing field. And I've heard numerous players say that this year. The way they practice is not the way they play. So, so you have to take a look at the why. I mean, I'm, I've – we get to go to three practices and don't see much of anything. Sure. So so I can't answer that, but he's going to have to take a hard, long look at to, you know, where those issues are and how he can address them. But I, I also want to add, Dabo tried to address the offensive line in the portal after 2021. You know, they chased a couple of guys, went as far as getting one on campus and offering him an interior guy they wanted him to play center. He ended up going to Michigan, just missed on him, you know, and, and didn't get that far along with the other, the other one. Um, I think they were going to try to address three, four spots in the portal last year. You get all these other guys, Tyler Davis, Ruka Roro, Jalen Phillips, um, yeah. a couple more decide they're going to come back, use their COVID year. All of a sudden, you're at 85 scholarships. You don't have room to bring anybody in. So I, I think he was slow to 
you know, come around to the portal. But but I don't think he's just going to refuse to use it. I'll be surprised if he doesn't use it this year. You, you know, you don't have the COVID year anymore. Sure. It's a little bit easier to manage your roster. But you're never going to see him overhaul the roster. I think you'll see him use it to fill a gap. Like, I think they're going to have a gap at defensive end. You lose Xavier Thomas, you lose Justin Michael, and you, you got a couple of guys that didn't work out behind them. You know, two top 100 guys who have been in that program three, four years now, one of them never sees the field, one of them barely sees the field. And then you got a couple of freshmen that look like they're going to be pretty good, but there's going to be a gap. You might very well need to go find a one-year starter, one-year rental. Let's put it that way. Um, give me the one minute. We got to get out of here in about two minutes. But give me the give me the minute and a half. One happens tomorrow in Death Valley when the Catholic University of America comes to calling because they're bringing a good football team. Hey, hey, with a very good quarterback who has never beaten Clemson. You know, it feels like he's been there kind of ten years. And Sam Hartman came close to beating them last year. But I don't know what's going to happen, man. I, I've, you know, the, the something lo- tells you Clemson rises up tomorrow. I can hear it in your voice. The logical part of me says Clemson's going to get pumped tomorrow. But what I've <laughs> the things I've heard about Dabo and kind of how he's responded in practice this week, I don't know. I, I think Clemson's going to win. I picked them to win, and I picked them to lose against Florida State. So, I mean, it's not like I pick them to win every week. I, I, if I think they're going to lose, I'll tell you. I, I don't know. I, they're, they're breaking out the orange britches tomorrow, and they don't ever do that unless the championship's on the line. You know, Dabo's kind of – pulling out all the stops here, and I think he's kind of going scorched earth this week in practice. And I don't know. There's just a part of me that thinks we're going to see a little something different tomorrow. I might be way off. We'll see. I just think we're going to see a little something different tomorrow. God, and they squeak one not. out. God, I hope not. I'll right. do the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. I'll do all that Catholic stuff like John Roach used to do, shooting free throws. Thank you, Jason. Yes, sir. Appreciate you. How can someone follow your work? You can find me on Twitter, at JP underscore priester or or all my works at allclemsontigers.com thank you sir Ah, i appreciate it take a break back with the josh show in just a minute no your radio is not broken you are still listening to wake up carolina just not with kennard or dave baker this is no shot josh filling in uh if you didn't catch the show earlier ken uh he had to bug out a little early because he's visiting a funeral of a friend of his who passed away so I, the producer, no shot, Josh, am filling in in the meantime. And I got to say, I was very excited when they asked me to do this. You know, I've uh, if you've listened to the show before, I've always talked about wanting to have my own radio show and that kind of deal. So when they asked me if I would fill in, I jumped on the opportunity. But, you know, now that I'm doing it, I'm kind of regretting it a little bit. I kind of wish instead of just one segment, I had my own hour because I've got so much I want to talk about, so much I want to share with you guys. And there's just not enough time left. But, uh Uh, If I could say something, you know, to you guys listening, uh, I've professed before on the show that I'm a devout Christian. This is no secret. And I know this is a political show and we delve into religion every now and then. But I got to say, I want to use this opportunity I have to share a little bit about my experience and my faith and what this show has done for me personally. So uh, if you're a semi-regular listener or just tuning in, uh, Ken calls me No Shot Josh when I'm on the air. And uh, the origin of that name comes from the fact that I actually was working as an assistant producer for WBT in Charlotte, North Carolina, which if you guys don't know, uh, and no offense to Ken and Dave, but that is a, it's a slightly bigger market than Florence. You know, the entire East Coast from Boston to uh, Miami is a, a little bit bigger than Florence, Orangeburg, and Sumter. No offense, you know, not, not comparing anything. But uh, I got to say, you know, it was tough because I I had a job there working as a phone screener. 
So people would call in. Uh, I worked for the Brett Winterbull show, and people would call in uh, from all over the East Coast, and I would, you know, take their name, what they want to talk about, write it down on some program, and the host would see it, and he would say, all right, we're going to so-and-so from so-and-so talking about this. And uh, I did that for about a year and had a really good time. It was a really fun job and really professional environment. Everyone there was really nice. They were real nice to me. It was a great gig. Um, But I said to myself, you know, it's part-time. After a year, I need to start and look for something else. Well, a year was coming up, and one of the producers for a different show decided to leave. And uh, Mike Schaefer, the program director of WBT, he asked me to do it. In fact, uh, him and another person whose name escapes me, they, at the same time, were offering me two different promotions. So I I made enough of an impact there that they were offering me two different uh, full-time jobs. And I was so excited, but here's where the issue comes in. Corporate, uh, Urban One, mandated the vaccine. And it's a conservative political talk station. We, uh, we, We spoke out a little bit against that. You know, a lot of the hosts, they did get the vaccine. They... They didn't have any problems with it scientifically. They weren't skeptical of the vaccine itself, but they were against people having to be forced to take it to keep their jobs or even just participate in the public workspace, you know, or in society in general. People in, you know, New York City were getting turned away from restaurants for not having it. So they were all against it, but, you know, it's corporate. That's just, that's just how things are sometimes. Um, And they mandated that, everyone get the vaccine. I originally, I applied for a religious exemption and uh, that was like three months into the job and I was there for a full year. So I'm there and like nine months later, I get offered these promotions and a week later, I get, oh, your religious exemption, it's been denied. And I was really bummed about this and, uh, you know, when I talked about it on the air with Ken originally, I didn't, uh, I didn't really have the opportunity to convey how difficult that decision was for me. So it it was really hard. I really, really struggled with this choice because I was against the vaccine. I thought it might kill you. And again, I'm not, I'm no scientist. This is just things I was hearing. My dad's a doctor. He told me not to take it. He said, do not take this. And it was really tough, you know, like I, uh, I graduated at the beginning of COVID and couldn't find a job at all in broadcast for an entire year. So this was a very difficult decision for me. And I ended up, you know, I had to pray about it and I went to God and I asked him what to do. And in his own way, uh, which I won't get into, he made it very clear to me the decision to make. And I quit. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a tough call, but it had to be made. And uh, eventually, I found myself back in Boone, North Carolina with a different job, which was hell on earth. I won't get into that, but it was terrible. And I was like, come on, God, like, where's my reward? I did what you wanted. And, you know, so, like, that, that didn't turn out well. I kept looking, and I got an email from a guy named Wayne Mulling, who's the current station manager here at Community Broadcasters. Long story short. Now I'm here on Wake Up Carolina. And I think in hindsight, the Lord, he truly does work in mysterious and awesome ways. I think that this opportunity has been so great because Ken, like as he said, he's not a radio show host by nature. He's, he's a politician. He's a, you know, he's a working man. 
And his, you know, I don't think at any point in his life, he's not explicitly said this, but that he in, that his goal, he was like, I, I certainly wanted to get in radio. I think this opportunity presented itself to him, and that comes with certain advantages uh, for me. Because at WBT, you have people that all the hosts there have been wanting to get in broadcast their entire lives. So now that they're in broadcast, they don't want to give the microphone to anyone else. They've got their, they finally got their you know, time in the spotlight. So Ken has been very gracious to me. Dave's been very gracious to me in allowing me to not only be a part of the show, but to voice my opinion and to be able to talk with you guys, the listeners. And uh, speaking of listeners, I have one guy on the phone. I told him if he wanted to stay on and talk, I'd let him. So without further ado, we have Nick from Lexington. Nick, you're on the air. Well, that was so much more compelling than what I would say. I would just want to say welcome. Thank you very much, buddy. And uh, I'll let you get back to it. Hey, man, I appreciate it. You have a good one, Nick. Bye-bye. Just like that, I mean, you know. Uh, he held on for a very long time and uh, wanted to give him his opportunity. <laughs> Didn't mean to take away from whatever you wanted to talk about because I'm sure he wanted to bring up something political, maybe about something regarding sports. Who knows? But uh, And that's something else I wanted to mention being here on the show. For the most part, <laughs> the listeners are really great because when I was working at WBT, I was a hard ass. If you If you call the show now, I'm much nicer than I was when I was working there because we had people, like I said, from all over the East Coast calling in. And I would say my my typical spiel was, this is the Brett Runnable Show. You're, uh, can I get your name and what you want to talk about? And if they go, hello, I hang up because I don't have time. There's so much more people calling. I don't have time to deal with the shenanigans. Fortunately, you know, I come here and uh, it's kind of an interesting, I get, uh, I get on the show and I, I'm, it's during my interview, I came in and I shadowed one of the shows. And, I, and I'm asking Dave uh, these questions. I'm like, so, hey, so how do you handle the calling? And uh, he just goes, we just get their name, where they're from, and put them on. And I'm like, you don't screen them? And he goes, no. I'm like, really? You just let, you just let people on the air no matter what? And he goes, yeah. I was shocked by that. That is so different than what I was used to. Uh, and thank God, uh, you people, for the most part, you, uh, the regular callers, you're, you're fairly normal. You know, you're not too crazy though. We have a couple, we have a couple crazy guys, but I love each and every one of them. Specifically, Jeff, Jeff, if you're listening, uh, you are my favorite caller. I, uh, you know, a lot of people, they talk on Facebook and they say things like, why do you let that guy on? I love Jeff. I love Williams. I love Bert. I love Anthony from North Carolina. They, those guys are my favorite callers. I love the antagonistic callers. But like I said, you know, I appreciate everything that's been given to me by God. I think this place is a real opportunity for me, and I've really enjoyed being part of the show. So without further ado, we got to take a break. It's coming up soon. Ken, if you're listening, I know I didn't quite get to anything political, but if you're running out of topics to talk about le- next week, be list- uh, we can talk about why I think you're wrong about how the Hispanic vote and the Jewish vote will sway Republican. I'm Josh Hayes filling in for Ken Ard, or No Shot Josh filling in for Ken Ard on Wake Up Carolina. We'll talk next week.